0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of Political Beats. This is a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We also ask you subscribe to our feed for new episodes, please. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, or you can find us as well at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, Leave reviews. We had a slew of reviews since our last episode, which is great to see. Uh, My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. Uh, My tag team partner standing by, Jeff Blair. Jeff? Jeff? I am excited to be here. This is going to be, as I think I've
1: announced probably 4,000 times so far on social media, the last episode I tape before Jeff Jr. comes into this world <laughs> and the newest political beats fan is created. So let's get on with it and wrap up the career of the greatest band that ever exists.
0: Yes, and if you weren't with us last time, well, why weren't you first? Uh, and second of all, I'll remind you, we are in the midst of uh, of our Beatles Episodes, and on episode one, we were joined by Charles C. W. Cook, who, uh, you know, for conti- uh, continuity's sake, joins us once again. You can find him on Twitter at Charles C. W. Cook. He's the editor of NationalReview.com and the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. Charles, thanks for returning.
2: Thanks for having me. It would have been really mean if you'd only had me on for the first half.
0: <laughs> Be like firing a a, a, a coach at halftime. I'm trying to think of like you, yes, and we brought in Jennifer Rubin to
1: wrap it up. <laughs> um, well, you no, know, you'd need her on
2: both, so you could see how she changed her mind on everything she'd said in the first episode. By the way. oh, Probably.
1: Charlie, oh, Charlie, that that's perfect. Oh dear. Um,
0: <laughs> on episode one, we took you all the way through "Rubber Soul." It also discussed the the double A sided single "Day Tripper" and "We Can Work It Out." And uh, so we begin part two. Part two takes us up to 1966, when an album would be forthcoming, but before that, uh, a single. So we start the second part of our Beatles two-part series with Paperback Writer. And if uh, uh, Little Birdie told me that Jeff has a relatively warm take about Paperback Writer, so we can start with you. Well, I don't know if it's a particularly hot
1: take at all. <laughs> I, I think that I, a lot of people would agree with me. I find this to be the least, the least prepossessing Beatles single, non-album single of uh, their late career. Now, you could say that something like "From Me to You" is isn't too terribly gripping, um, but you know that's early Beatles. That's when they're still finding their feet. That's before they've kind of reached their full flower. I think "Paperback Writer" just doesn't it's not a particularly impressive song it's not a particularly impressive single to me i think uh, it's more noteworthy as a sonic achievement than it is as a you know a, a musical achievement and i think that really you know as a mccartney song the most noteworthy aspect about it is that it represents that moment where you know the rap against mccartney first got set in which is that he's more interested in you know the formal qualities of music and and sound than he is with the meaning of lyrics because what is this song about it's about nothing it's just like a cheerful story about you know a man who wants to be a paperback writer i mean why does anybody want to be a paperback writer um you know, I guess maybe the modern equivalent would be like I want to be an internet journalist, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, perhaps that would that would seem more relevant to our age. But there's no particular meaning behind the song. Uh, it's just a sonic confection. It's ear candy, and and as ear candy, it's it's not bad. I mean. You know, I mean, everybody likes, you know, the whole Frere Jacques, you know, Frere Jaka backing vocals at the end of the song. And and everybody talks about, you know, that very dynamic sounding bass line that Paul got out of the recording, which is, I think, you know, kind of set a lot of standards in terms of the industry, the British industry in particular. But at the end of the day. It's one of their least memorable tunes. And, and, and it doesn't really compare in any way to me to its B-side, which is Lennon's, which is called Rain, which I think is, is by far the more impressive track, both as an instrumental performance and you know as a song that, that though seemingly meaningless, meaningless actually has a meaning. It's, it's a real active attempt to represent that psychedelic and drug experience that the Beatles were, were undergoing at the time and yet weren't still talking openly about.
0: So I'll defend it a bit, and, and and again, it's not a hot take from Jeff, but I, 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 as a sonic experiment, as a as a song that sounds good, I think it's excellent. Um, and the, uh, the big heavy bass line, which which I think came about because the Beatles were complaining. I think they heard Wilson Pickett, uh, a song in which th- that bass was so much heavier and thicker and louder than the Beatles, and they wanted it to be just as loud, and they accomplished that pretty well, uh, on Paperback Writer. The, kind of that, the, that, that chord, I think Letting called that, that son of day tripper in terms of the way that chord starts uh, the paperback writer song. Um, it's got a unique sound in their catalog, uh, at least the way it hits my ear. And I, I somewhat forgot how much I enjoyed the you know, somewhat playfulness of, of, the, of the melody of paperback writers. Uh, I I like it a lot. And and Rain, the B-side that Jeff mentioned, is also uh, notable because it's one of the real great Ringo performances, too. (laughs) I don't know how many times Ringo's been compared to Keith Moon, but there's a lot of Keith Moon-esque fills and moves on Rain from Ringo behind the kit. Pretty good single.
2: It didn't go straight to number one in the UK. It went to number two, but then I think it went to number one. And a lot of the music press said, oh, are they losing it? Is this the end? Are people uh, diminished in their enthusiasm for the Beatles? And obviously they weren't. We're about to talk about why. But it it is lacking a little bit, I think. I agree with Jeff. I think Rain is... Possibly a better song, although I don't know if Rain is a single. No, it's it, not. It, it's an album track or a B side. It's interesting in the sense that it is a, an example of the Beatles writing about something completely abstract, mm-hmm. which up to this point they hadn't done often uh, and which they were about to do a lot. And in that sense, Um, it marks a a waypoint. But it's still quite thin uh, in recording terms. I mean, you mentioned the bass. Yes, they wanted the Wilson Pickett sound. They didn't get it until Sgt. Pepper. Even on Revolver, they didn't get it. And the guitar itself is hollow compared to the sort of songs that it subsequently inspired in different decades. And listening to it now... I find that frustrating. Normally, I don't find the Beatles recordings frustrating at all, but I find it frustrating that it, it sounds thin. Um, I, to be honest with you, often forget it exists. It's one of the few <laughs> Beatles songs that I forget about until I hear it on the radio. And I think, oh, yes, that, because it's in an odd position.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And maybe we should have finished with that or, uh, as, as the last moment before they went supernova.
1: Well, and, of course, this is the moment where the Beatles' career spontaneously collapsed. This was the end of the Beatles. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, this is the moment where John Lennon gave a very, very unfortunate interview to uh, a a lady at, I believe, the Evening Standard, a British periodical of the time, uh, where, you know, he was doing the classic John Lennon. Probably a little bit high or a little bit drunk, just sort of blue skying in front of the, the woman. And, and he, fa- he said the famous uh, phrase, he's talking about you know, the death of religion uh, in, in Britain. And he said, well, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. We are more popular than Jesus now. Um, which, uh, as you can imagine, in the 1960s did not play particularly well, especially in America and especially in the Deep South, where the Beatles' records started being burned on bonfires by very disturbing-looking men in white robes and pointy hats. Uh, The Esther clan got involved, uh, as they often uh, want to do in these situations. Uh, Lennon had to apologize in tears. Uh, They played a lot of – believe it or not, the Beatles did not sell out their 1966 world tour, particularly in America. They played to half-empty stadiums. Uh, People were saying, is this the end of of the band? Uh, And uh, the only thing that gave the light of that is the fact that they released an album right around this time before they embarked on that tour – called Revolver, which a lot of people would say is not only the greatest Beatles album ever released, but maybe the single greatest album ever released in the history of rock music. So perhaps they still had a little gas left in the tank after all. Um, i'm not sure i would agree with either of those two assessments about revolver but obviously it is a fantastic album i think it is clearly one of the beatles three greatest albums that much i can certainly grant i want to turn it over to you guys first to talk about what do you say about this album and 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 let's also try to put it in the context of what had come before rubber soul rubber soul was like a significant advance over help Mm -hmm. but the gap between Revolver sonically and what was on Rubber's Soul seems to me to be so much wider.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, from here on out, you can hear and read arguments likely, except for perhaps let it be that each of the you know, next albums might be the Beatles' best. Most days, if you ask me, I believe I would say uh, it's, it's Revolver. Um, in terms of the recording techniques, there's a couple of things on Revolver that are, that are new. Right? Uh, the, the artificial double tracking, which would allow uh, some really interesting sounds in the studio. They could speed up, slow down recordings. Uh, the backwards recording, which was used in a, in a couple of s- situations here on uh, I'm Only Sleeping and, and Tomorrow Never Knows. Uh, this group of songs is really strong. I mean, it's at a point where I believe by this point they knew they were going to be done touring. So they didn't have to worry about recreating these songs in a live setting. Not that it mattered previously anyway, because the crowd was screaming so loudly, no one could hear what they were playing or singing anyway. I don't think they knew that at all. You don't think so? Okay.
1: No, no, they went out and toured right after the Hmm. came out, and they tried to play paperback rider on the road but it obviously sounded like garbage when they did it. You can actually see a version of it on the Beatles anthology video where they're playing it in Japan, and they just sound awful. They cannot do it. And it was at the end of that tour where I think Harrison actually said, like, I quit. I quit the band. If we, have to, if we tour again, I'm out. I'm done. And that's when they, that's when they pulled the plug. But yeah, when Revolver came out, it was not at all a foregone conclusion that they would stop touring.
0: Hmm. Well, from the start, Taxman with the count off, the one, two, three, four intro, which kind of harkens back, of course, to the beginning of I Saw Her Standing There with Count Out the Beginning of That Song to Start the Album. Uh, Taxman's a great Harrison tune and a, a direct song, right? It's not about uh, love or girls or falling in love. It's about the tax system in Britain with specific people being mentioned, which I believe was at John's uh, suggestion that they actually mentioned the people who were involved in the British tax system at that time. The, uh, the, the, the few songs I want to make sure I highlight here are, are the ones toward um, at the end of side one and the beginning of side two. She Said, She Said, I believe it was a final track they recorded for the album. And it's one of my favorite Beatles tracks. Uh, I don't think Paul's involved on 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 the recording at all. So it's just John and George and 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 Ringo. And, and the lyrics come from a conversation between John Lennon and Peter Fonda while they were both having an LSD trip. Um, the, the 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 guitar part, the, the rhythm from John is just wonderful. Uh, George helped a bit to, to finish things off. Um, and and just that 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 first line. She said, "I know what it's like to be dead." Very. Different kind of feel from, from previous Beatles songs. She said,
4: I know what it's like to be dead. I know what it is to be sad. And she's making me feel like i am never been
0: wrong. You go to two on Revolver. Good day, sunshine um quick story this just happened this week i'm driving in the car with my son and i had the beatles on because i'm of course still still listening and planning for the show good day sunshine comes on and and it plays once and from the back seat alex says i want to hear good day sunshine again like all right we'll play it again by the second time he's already singing along to the choruses the good day sunshines and he says i want to hear it again so we play it again by the third time, he's getting involved in the verses. Hours later, we're at home, and I said, Alex, what's that song we were singing today? And he's singing the choruses and the verses. My point being that this is an, an example of, of, of Paul's writing being so accessible, direct, memorable. Uh, immediately, all those things. And, and Good Day Sunshine is... I, I love Good Day. Of all the songs the Beatles wrote about welcoming the day... Uh, Good Day Sunshine is one of the best. Um, I love Ringo's cymbal crashes during the chorus, too. It's just fantastic. And then, And Your Bird Can Sing, again, uh, one of my favorite Beatles songs uh, of, of all of them. And there's a lot, as we'll get into. Uh, but this, those twin guitar riffs from Paul and, and George, the song just really takes off. There's wonderful emotion in John's voice uh, throughout And Your Bird Can Sing. I love the hand claps. Sucker for those. And, um, I guess briefly, too, got to get you into my life. The very last song on the album, I um, always thought it was about a girl, and it turns out, Paul says, it's about uh, marijuana. So, I don't know if that affects your, your enjoyment of the track. But very Motown-influenced, great vocals from, from McCartney, and, uh, and, a, and a great highlight of Revolver, which, again, most days, you ask me, I'll probably tell you it's my favorite Beatles album.
1: Okay, you know why Revolver isn't my favorite Beatles album? You know why I cannot consider Revolver the best Beatles album? is because I, I listened to this album, I listen to this album again with the ears that are so hypercritical that can only be you know, used to judge the Beatles on their own terms and not another band's terms. And I find that there's a lot of music on the first half of this album that I don't much care for. I have never liked Here, There, and Everywhere. I do not like it. I think it is maybe close to being a bad song you can talk to me all day long about the formal perfection of mccartney's chord changes and how beautiful the quote-unquote harmonies are i think it's a glurgy mess if mccartney was trying to pay a tribute to the beach boys he fell on his face and he ended up writing my love part one (laughs) i really really do not like that song i find it to be everything that I think McCartney has actually been unfairly saddled with, and his solo career. Of course, we did an episode on McCartney, and I'm a huge fan of his solo work. Um, But you know, when he is twee and you know too sugary sweet, he can be unbearable. And here, there, and everywhere is the first unbearable song that Paul McCartney ever wrote. I hate it. Uh, And another one that I've just never much loved is uh, you know you know nice kid song, but man, Yellow Submarine does nothing for me yellow submarine is is is, it's a novelty tune we all live in a yellow submarine the only thing i think when i think about when i think about it is is the parody version that we wrote when we were in elementary school where we talked about you know and now we live beneath the dirt in our white garbanzo bean we all live in a white garbanzo bean that that's it's basically the level of the song i don't know how it somehow managed to go to number one but i think it's a far less worthy song than the one that and it still blows my mind to this day that they had the gall to put this out as an A side of a single, <laughs> uh, which is Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, on the other hand, is maybe one of the finest songs the Beatles ever wrote, uh, and maybe the finest lyric that Paul McCartney ever wrote. And it's such a contrast between the sort of the vapidness of Here There and Everywhere, and you know Yellow Submarine, and the absolute brutal commentary on the death of spirituality the death of you know you know common church feeling in britain in the 1960s with eleanor rigby i don't know where that song came from you know you mccartney always talked about how yesterday came to him in a dream eleanor rigby feels like the song that came to him in a nightmare you know i'll look at all the lonely people and then of course that those images that that actually are legitimately haunting, where you know Eleanor Rigby, you know, picks up the rice at a church where a wedding has been, you know, and we're we, and she she you, sits by the window wearing a face that she keeps in a jar, which is makeup, um, but it's also a, a sort of an image that makes you think that, you know, unless she walks outside and is seen by other people, she does not exist; that she has no actual, you know, you know, meaning. Uh, except the meaning that she has to society, and society is ignoring her and has let her down because, you know, when she dies, you know, you know, she's buried along with her name, and nobody came. And then you know that horrible image of Father Mackenzie just wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. This lyric is the most powerful lyric uh, that was ever written in a Beatles song, and it stuns me that Paul McCartney was responsible for it. I, oh, I, I just no, don't know where it he, came from. He
2: he was, but from what I've read, this was something of a group effort uh, at one of their houses. The could All the Only People line, and I think Melody, was contributed by George.
1: Right, I think also Ringo came up with the whole darning his socks in the night when there's right. nobody in their line. Um, but the basic thrust is...
2: It is That's- McCartney's, although John was involved with it too. You get some of that darkness. And I think Mal Evans even... Was there when it was being written? So, in in one sense, it's it's a communal recollection from five, six Liverpudlians.
1: But but it's just to come up on an album that is what's what's the last thing they've been writing? Two years ago, they've been writing "She Loves You," yeah, 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 and now they're they're doing the darkest conceivable social commentary on the death of an old lady and the death of you know communal spirit in a nation and the church. Ah, How do you go from point A to point B Eleanor Rigby is everything the Beatles had actually evolved to I think it's and, in, in, a, in a way it's their most advanced form even though this is not their you know they have four more albums left to go.
2: John was envious if you watch the uh, the interview at the airport when they first arrived in the United States for the 66 tour and Eleanor Rigby has already been released at this point I think as a single Uh, a reporter says, what's it about? Why did you include that? This is a change for you all. Is there anything deep behind it? (laughs) And (laughs) Paul is about to start speaking. And John jumps in and says, no, we just needed another song for the album, you know.
3: (laughs) Ah, Which
2: (laughs) Which is such an obvious attempt to stop McCartney taking credit for this great moment.
1: Right, right. I mean, uh, so I've just spent a lot of time uh, you know, praising Eleanor Rigby, but also criticizing the first half of Revolver. Um, But the reason Revolver is is still such a genius piece of work is that I think it's the second side of Revolver is the most perfect span of songs that the Beatles ever would record. I think it's unimpeachable. It is flawless. It it is since I was a child have been able to rattle off the names Mm. in a row like they were a conversation, you know. Good day, sunshine. And your bird can sing for no one. Dr. Robert, I want to tell you, got to get you into my life. Tomorrow never knows. It's just a sequence of music that has no flaws, has nothing that can be impeached. And by the way, speaking about darkness, another curiously depressed song uh, is for no one. By McCartney, And this one yes. is, is, is 100% his and no one else's. It's literally him just sitting alone at a piano and writing. And in fact, that's the way it's played with you know, an Alan Civil Horn solo in the middle of it. Um, what a bleak lyric. And in her eyes, you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears cried for no one. And that one little turn at the end that I think kind of betrays it. A love that should have lasted years. I, I wish he just worked a little harder to get a better line than that, because it seems slightly sort of more lightweight than than the rest of the gravity of the song. You know, where's that great line where where he says, you know, you know, she wake he wakes up, she goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone, but now he's gone. She doesn't need him. That is uh, as. Epigrammatically perfect and concise, uh, a way of depicting, you know, the end of a relationship and the death of, of love and the death of a feeling as you know a hundred poems would be. And, and because it's so spare, it's so much more effective than any of them could be.
4: You stay home she goes out. She says that long ago she knew someone but now he's gone, she doesn't need him. Your day breaks, your mind aches. There will be times when all the things she said will fill your head. You won't forget her. And in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears. Cried for no one. A love that should have lasted
1: years. I'm so impressed with For No One. Um, but you know the other thing, uh, the last thing I'll do, because you know, I could talk about every one of these songs. Uh, I do want to just single out George. George gets three songs on this album. Mm-hmm. I, uh, three songs on this album, and they're all great. People often dismiss "Love You Too" because it's like too Indian. I think "Love You Too" is really an amazing song. I really love the rag. I, I love how they turn these Indian instruments into a rock percussion track. They really get a groove out of it. They get, they turn the tamboras in particular into some sort of feedback sounding like guitar where he goes, I'll make love to you. And he goes, Zzzz. you hear the guitars play, or the, the rather the sitars and tambours playing like that. You get a really powerful groove from purely Indian instruments. I'm very impressed with Love You 2. Um, Taxman is my least favorite of the three though because the one I really enjoy the most is I Want to Tell You, a song that no one talks about, but Jimi Hendrix in particular thought was the best song on the entire record. And hey, you know what? You know, I'm going to cite to the authority of you know the greatest guitarist of the 60s Jimi Hendrix knew what he was talking about with I Want to Tell You
2: Well this is the first album since Hard Day's Night in which there is no song that feels as if it should have been on another album or that it was a throwaway that's not to say I like every song on there but I think it is the most cohesive album since Hard Day's Night. It's of course a lot more varied and eclectic than Hard Day's Night. With Rubber Soul, you have Wait, which was an outtake from the Help Sessions, really shouldn't have been on there. There's nothing on here like that. And I see this as being a halfway house between Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper. They are still a band, They're playing as a band. They have one eye on their live shows. But the sessions aren't quite the same as they have been before. There's a photograph in one of the books I have on the Beatles of John Lennon sitting with an Epiphone Casino uh, recording, I don't know which one of the tracks, with a glass of red wine on the top of his amp.
1: Do you want to (laughs) explain uh, to the listeners what an Epiphone Casino is? Because I know, but I don't think they will. It's a
2: large hollow bodied electric guitar. A little like the Gibson three three five. Don't right. know what that is either, so look it up. <laughs> yeah, anyhow, the, the point is that when you're getting towards Beatles sessions that involve wine, you're getting toward two things. One is a preference for later night recording, which changes the tone. Uh, It changes the way in which they worked, partly because they were drinking and smoking and going up on the roof and taking LSD at one point. Uh, But also because they were working more individually. Now, they haven't yet got to the point at which they are working individually. But they were less uh, on a nine-to-five shift schedule. And EMI is more indulgent of them because they're the Beatles. And this starts to come through um, in their music. I think on this album, the the person who changes the most is Ringo. Ringo is, as we've discussed, a phenomenal drummer, one of the greats. On Revolver, though, he's not just playing perfect backbeats, perfect fills. He's using his drums as another melodic instrument. And this comes to the fore, especially on Sgt. Pepper, but on Revolver the patterns do not always serve to drive the song they often operate in the way that the trumpets do, or that the guitar line does, Mm -hmm. and you really hear him coming into his own, he enjoyed recording Revolver uh, more than some of their later albums, uh, because he is more of a melodically inclined member of the band on this record than he has been in the past. And you you see the difference on this album. You see why it is set apart from what came before it right from the beginning. They start with a George song. They've never done that. That shows that uh, the, uh, the talent of their third songwriter has reached the point at which the famous Lennon-McCartney uh, are willing to defer. Uh, McCartney plays the guitar solo on it. They're starting to share instruments, which they were doing on "Help and Rubber Soul" to some extent.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but this is a change. It's a political song. They've never been political ever. Uh, and both you have to love how
1: bipartisan they
2: were, though, because they included both. <laughs> Well, they hated everyone. And, and Yeah, right. And Wilson. They, Wilson and Heath got it. From well, look, we, we, we don't talk about politics on this show, but I think in the context of history, it is fair to say that there is a revulsion among these four working-class kids at this point um, at how much of their money, 95% in some cases, is being taken by the government. Uh, and it comes through on this song. And as you say, it's not a partisan thing because the British establishment at this point had been taken over by this uh, technocratic socialist mentality. Uh, and Edward Heath was not much better than Wilson. <laughs> and so uh, they're just generally uh, irritated. Um, so they're political, and that's a bit of a change. And of course, they're then political on Eleanor Rigby in, in a non-party um, uh, political or, or Public policy-based way. Uh, this is the point at which that sort of song feels normal. Yesterday feels a bit out of place. On help feels as if it was done too early. I think you said, Jeff. Eleanor Rigby does not, uh, and they had the the confidence to release it as a single. Jeff, you and I just vehemently disagree on here, there, and everywhere. And I can remember drinking with you and talking about
1: this. <laughs> I do, too. I do too, and and that was why I said it because I wanted I wanted to provoke you. So
2: I I think it's a beautiful song. I think it is McCartney at his craftsman like best. I think the harmonies are beautiful. It's you know, John Lennon who was fiercely jealous of his own ability. Uh, said later on that it was his favorite ever Beatles song. I think in the, the recordings he made in 1980, just before he died, uh, the interviews, he said that was my favorite one. And and again, from what I understand, he liked it right from the beginning. They all went skiing or something, and they had the demos on these reel-to-reel tape machines that they'd bought, and Paul and John shared a chalet, and Paul played him the song. And he said, oh, that one, that that's a good one. I think it is. Uh, I don't think it's... My God, I I can't bear my love. I can't bear it. It's it's horrible in every way. It's saccharine. There's not much to the song. He sings it with this irritating. Uh, (laughs) But this song is completely different. It's it's recorded dry. You know, there's there's no reverb on the vocal. Uh, It's tight. The double tracking seems to have been done manually. The harmonies have been worked out beforehand and practiced in the way they were on say, because.
4: And if she's beside me, I know I need never care. But to love her is to need everywhere. Knowing.
2: I think this is a great McCartney moment and I would pair it with For No One which is another great mm-hmm. McCartney moment For No One lyrically reminds me a little bit um, of where McCartney was going on Rubber Soul where he's, he's going through a breakup or imagining a breakup uh, this is after the breakup R- Rubber Soul is during the breakup Revolver is after the breakup Yellow Submarine is horrible it's, <laughs> Ringo's vocal is out of tune the song is silly I, I f- flip past it every single time She Said She Said fascinates me and I, in my mind it's quite similar to Annual Burke and Sing although they are different songs She Said She Said is basically all of Oasis
1: Yes I mean, and that, that's- By the way are there are times when I could tell you I I thought that that was the best song on the album. By the way, I think it's Eleanor Rigby now, but I am fascinated with it in the same way Oasis style. But yeah,
2: if you had if if Noel Gallagher had and Liam Gallagher had been put on a desert island and and they only had two songs, <laughs> she said she said and
0: rain. <laughs> they could still have the same <laughs> career <laughs> um and that's another great ringo track too she, he's great well again the drumming said, it's yeah. not
2: it's not just there to drive the song forward he's 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 an integral part of the architecture of the song uh, and the same is true with annual Burke and Sing which is a masterclass in guitar playing as much as anything else and again you see how the band is changing because mccartney is playing that uh, riff along with George right. um, they're starting to swap instruments um, it, it's got a rubber soul vibe but it has the edge of, of revolver And I agree that this is where George really comes into his own. I think I want to tell you is the best George song on the album as well. I imagine it was George Martin that puts in that haunting mm-hmm. piano that gives it its off-kilter vibe and possibly a drug-infused vibe. Either way, George is is showing himself uh, as being capable of learning from his two colleagues, uh, but also of bringing in a a sentiment that they don't have. And for the rest of the Beatles' career, that would be vital. And then we get to the last song on the album, which is Tomorrow Never Knows. And I've read a lot about this song, and I essentially disagree with almost anyone who's ever written about it. If you read reviews of Tomorrow Never Knows or uh, culture critics who mention it in passing, they... They usually say it's interesting that it was the last song on the album because it was the bridge to the future of the Beatles. It was a leap into the future. It was a sign of things to come. But it wasn't. They never returned to this. This was not a song that indicated and pre-echoed Sgt. Pepper. This was the furthest they ever went. They went as far as they were ever going to go on a traditional song, I'm excluding Revolution Nine. Hmm. In 1966, Sergeant Pepper, which we'll come on to after this, is not that. It is not Tomorrow Never Knows. It is not John Lennon sitting there strumming, you know, variations on C, singing through a Leslie speaker, you know, s- snippets of text he's got from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They they went past that track 14 and they never went back to it. And it's you listen to it now and it sounds as if it could have been released yesterday. Or it sounds sometimes as if it's still too early for it. This was this was a a black hole in their in their catalogue. And you just have to praise George Martin. I mean, anyone else, especially an older man, a more traditional man who had been faced with a probably high John Lennon spaced out, strung out, strumming one chord on his guitar and nasally whining
1: odd things would have said Ugh, John, I don't know and do you remember what Lennon's demand? Do you remember what Lennon's demand of Martin was? He said, "I want to sound like uh, someone chanting at the top of Mount Everest to ten thousand Tibetan monks." Right, <laughs> and, and you know what? George Martin gave him that.
2: <laughs> and and yeah. the, the the tape loops that they use to create the sound that we hear as birds is so beautiful.
1: Yes, that was the, I was that's the loop that does it for me i
2: electronic music fan. I'm not a huge uh, advocate of this sort of experimentation. But here, it is perfect and it is unique within the Beatles catalogue.
1: The best part is that that sound is actually Paul McCartney laughing sped up. Oh, is it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. The
2: the last thing I would say about this album is is the influence that it has in general. That cannot be overstated i mean my, i have a, a a pet theory here sid barrett who was pink floyd's founding star although he only lost i think was it was one album jeff yeah and then yeah well, one album yeah. And
1: a couple of singles one and a half albums really. and then he
2: goes mad and you get wish you were here paying testament to him but he spent most of the summer of 1966 listening to Revolver over and over and over and over again and I think it inspires him and therefore a lot of music that was to come outside of the Beatles but I think it also drove him mad there's so much that is made of the interplay between the Beatles and the Beach Boys that the Beatles release Revolver which spurs on pet sounds and pet sounds spurs on sergeant pepper i for what it's worth think revolver and sergeant pepper are so much better than pet sounds that it's not even funny either way artists at this point are looking at others and they're trying to reach it sid barrett was a very talented man but if he had listened to this album over and over and over and over and over again and then he couldn't do it himself Hmm. it almost certainly drove him crazy
1: I mean, that's actually, you know, I think true for a lot of bands. The The Rolling Stones, I think, pretty emphasis. Inf- I'm pretty scholarly when it comes to the Stones. It's transparently obvious that they heard revolver they probably heard advanced copies because the bands were friendly and they tried to imitate tomorrow never knows and the whole psychedelic vibe of the album with maybe one of their worst ever singles a song called have you seen your mother baby standing in the shadow Mm -hmm. which is just a mess it does not work (laughs) it's kind of funny as a joke but it's not a good song and then they immediately gave up and their next album is between the buttons which i think is a great record but it's clearly you know it's the moment where they decided you know what we're not going to try to be psychedelic wonderkins like the Beatles. We're going to imitate the Kinks instead, which is what that album is. That's a Kinks album, uh, Kinks influenced album in a lot of different ways. Because if you try to if you try to just ape these people, it will drive you out of your mind. As you say, it kind of drove Brian Wilson to you know at the end of his rope, and it may have done the same thing to Sid Barrett. I don't think you can. Um, you can attempt to play catch up with a group that has a head start of you uh that is you know at least a year uh, they are the ones who are saying the trends and no matter what you do you're always going to be following in their wake um but of course this brings us you know to what happens in 1966, which is the Beatles go on that, that ill gotten tour of the United States, playing to half full stadiums. It's miserable. They, they're playing like crap. They, they, they've never been less motivated. Uh, they're done with it. And George Harrison famously says at the end of their, you know, and in the car on the way back from Candlestick Park, uh, like, I'm quitting the band. You know, And what he then you know, later reveals is, like, I'm quitting the band if we ever tour again. So they're done with touring. Lennon then takes the time, since they don't have to worry about touring obligations, to go do a movie. It's called How I Won the War. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. I have. It's not good. Don't bother. Don't waste your time. But what matters is that while he was filming it in Spain, uh, he ended up writing the early demo fragments of a song that was kind of about his childhood – Maybe it was kind of about uh, his own sense of feeling lost and the way that the, the psychedelic drugs that he was currently experimenting with were sort of revealing these depths uh, of of sadness and rage and 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 you know uh, self-doubt that had really previously been hidden by a layer of sarcasm and and acerbic wit that had always been the sort of Lenin signature uh, but now had been laid bare by. Uh, LSD, which has this habit of stripping you of your defenses. It sort of tells your mental concierge to check out, (laughs) and you're naked. And the result of that was Strawberry Fields Forever, uh, which Lennon then submitted to McCartney, and McCartney said, this is Strawberry Fields, named after a a place that they had both known uh, growing up in Liverpool. And he said, well, I'm going to write a song called Penny Lane and this is how they rang in. They recorded it in late 1966, and this is how they rang in the year 1967. And I'm not sure this is the greatest Beatles single ever released, but a lot of people would say it is, and I would say that they've got a damn strong case to make. In particular, there are so many things. We could spend an entire show just talking about how Strawberry Fields was recorded. I will say this, Strawberry Fields Forever and this is the maybe the most random thing to single out about it I think it could well be the single greatest drum track that Ringo Starr ever recorded with the Beatles I'm obsessed with the drum sound that Ringo gets at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever it sounds like a freight train And there's an outtake of it where uh, you can hear it on the anthology, where, like, you know, Ringo's just going on and on. And then at the end, you hear John saying, All right, calm down, Ringo, calm down. It's the most powerful, powerful, nightmarishly driving rhythm track of any Beatles song of their entire career. Um, but there are so many other things to say about Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. So again, you know, Charlie, actually, because I I want to hear your thoughts on this one first. Sorry, Scott, because I know I've talked about this with Charlie in the past.
2: This is the greatest double A side ever released in music history. To have them both on the same piece of vinyl <laughs> is unlikely. And to have them in the same place at the same time to have every strength of John's filtered through his childhood in Liverpool onto a Beatles song and every strength of Paul's filtered through his childhood onto a Beatles song and then to press them onto a piece of plastic and sell it (laughs) I mean the 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 chances are infinitesimally small. And you know if you if you were, if you were asked to write an academic paper tell me why John Lennon was fantastic in the Beatles give me the give me the uh John Lennon song and then give me the urge uh, Paul McCartney song with
1: all the strengths that that implies this is it. I can give you the urge John Lennon lyric and it's this no one I think is in my tree although it must be high or low. There that is such a beautiful lyric. It's childlike and yet it, it has a very specific meaning. Is that like I, I, I think I'm crazy, I think I'm different. I don't know if it means that I'm genius or that I'm a madman. Boom. And it says it just so elusively. That's John. That's the yeah, that's that's the best lyric that Lennon ever wrote. George Martin regretted
2: for the rest of his life that this wasn't on Sgt. Pepper. Brian Epstein insisted it not be on the upcoming album. It doesn't particularly matter to me which one of them was right. This is the greatest double A side that was ever recorded. Um, it also is monumentally different from revolver the recording techniques are different they sound different john on i'm only sleeping uh, begins to get and and tomorrow never knows begins to get here where he suddenly starts
1: to seem as if he's singing from somewhere else it's ethereal there's a narcotic tone to it yeah well
2: it's partly the the production and, and at this point George Martin has been working on automatic double tracking. And, of course, if you're slowing down and speeding up tapes uh, with with double tracking, then you create what George Martin jokingly called flange, but it's <laughs> actually become the term in the industry for that <laughs> effect. Um, and John loves it because John hates his voice by this point. He He thinks he's lost his voice. He thinks it's weaker than it was, which may or may not be true. Either way, he hates it. He's become self-conscious about it. So it's partly a product of recording technique. But it's also that John John has been afforded by his position in life and his newfound wealth the capacity to do whatever he wants. And what he wants to do is much stranger than what Paul wants to do. John is much less normal a person much less happy a person much less straightforward a person than is paul and this is really i think his first chance to go out on a limb and talk what looks at first like nonsense although you're right jeff the song is not nonsense but it looks at first a little edward lear uh to record it in any way that he wants to and to have full backing from the greatest band that has ever lived, one of the greatest producers that have ever lived, and one of the greatest studios that was ever put together.
4: always know sometimes think it's me But you know I know and it's a dream I think I know I mean, uh, yes, but it's all wrong That is, I think I disagree
2: And I don't need to go on and on about Penny Lane because Penny Lane is is Paul's um being a carpenter. You know, he, he is producing heartbreaking melodies and and surrounding them with structure. And I, I will leave my praise for Paul and his ability to do that for Sergeant Pepper, because I think there is a continuum. Um but but John in this moment, distills what it was to be John Lennon um, uh, into that song,
0: Scott. Quite honestly, I'm not sure I can add much to what both of you have said about these two songs. So, <laughs> since <laughs> we have lots more music to get to, I don't, I don't, I don't mind moving along a bit.
1: Well, let's talk about the most overrated album in history: uh, *Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band*. Yeah, that's my intro. Yeah, I, I I think it's overrated. What are you going to do? What are you going to fire me from the show? <laughs> I don't know. Don't fire him. Please don't fire me from the show. Can't Charles. tell
2: if serious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We've had this conversation before, Charlie. We have. Okay, listen. I'm going to be quick. I'm going to be brief on Sgt. Pepper's, ironically. This is the most famous album in the history of the Beatles, right? <clears throat> this is their... Their beggars' banquet, you know, their let it bleed. This is their, you know, their Tommy. This is why. I mean, why am I using comparisons from like lesser bands? This is the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This is the the album that inaugurated the Summer of Love, an album that literally set the tone for an entire era of music, an epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I gotta tell you. There's a lot of music on this album that I just don't care for. You know a song I think is a real piece of crap? I'll tell you right now. It's called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Chuck that into a dustbin. I think it's a terrible song. I think it's clumsy. I think it ruins the very gentle mood sent by Lennon's uh, you know, sent by his his, his verses, you know, picture yourself on a boat on a river, which is not a great by the way melodic idea or even Terribly brilliantly executed instrumentally, but it has a certain uh, atmospheric charm to it. But then it goes into the bump, bomb, bump, sort of plodding four-four "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" rock verse chorus. Ah, oh, it's just it's um, it's one of those songs that it I'm always amazed that people like it as much as they do, and I think they do because they, they just, you know, have been taken by the myth of it being like, oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> LSD, you know, elucidating this sky with diamonds is about LSD, which ironically enough, for an album that's completely suffused with acid, this is the one song that was not actually about LSD. It was actually about a painting that his son drew. Um, I don't care for that song. I think being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is a very impressive production. A lot of effort was put into a song that's otherwise not very impressive. When I'm 64 is one of those songs that works in the context of an album that is otherwise not a really very impressive song. And it's very telling when you find out that song was written in 1960. That's Mm -hmm. like literally the oldest song in the Beatles entire, I think that and the one after nine Oh nine are the oldest Beatles songs to ever make it out into their (laughs) official discography. Um, I'm going to tell you what the best song on this album is. And by the way, this is a song that I genuinely love. I love with my whole heart. I will defend it to the death. And I think it's one of the things that every time I hear it, I actually get moved by it. And that's with a little help from my friends. I think that is the best song. Okay, non a day in the life version. I guess we always have to cabin (laughs) that apart from everything else i i like with a little help my friends more on an emotional level though than a day in the life because i think it's more immediately relatable uh, i think it's the best thing that ringo ever sang with the beatles i mm-hmm. think it's it's the it's the most immediately relatable song on this record i think that there's just something so immensely moving about the way first of all that lyric th- this is a song they came up with at the end of the recording sessions they were pressed for time <clears throat> They only have 13 songs in the album by the way you know so they were usually it was a 14 song album that they would release they only have 13 songs this record one of them is a reprise so you know they're kind of struggling for material because they gave away strawberry fields and penny Lane on the single and so what do they do they come up with this thing as they're they're just sort of you know lennon and mccartney are sitting around you know like bashing out ideas on the piano and they come up with this lyric you know like you know what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out of key. And it is the most nakedly vulnerable moment uh, on the album. And maybe even in the Beatles' entire discography, which is why it was a perfect song to give to Ringo. Mm -hmm. And he just... Sings the hell out of it when that last moment where he, you know I get by a little help from my friends is the highest note he ever sang. He didn't want to uh, do it. He didn't want to sing he that note. He, he didn't want to do it, but he kills it. Yep. he kills it. And everything about the vocal arrangement of that song is just note perfect. With like George, Paul, and and John going with, "Do you need anybody? I just need someone to love." Could I, I it so be anybody
2: ever? Beatles vocal performance, and that is saying something.
1: I know, it's just so, it's, it it seemed like a chorus of angels or friends, you feel like you're enfolded in just these big, warm, loving arms, and that is a very, very powerful emotion to be able to convey in a song, and this is, you know, why, when we did our covers episode, uh, Scott included the Joe Cocker version, which is good, it's good, it's not a bad cover, Um, and I, I, emphatically disagreed i was like yeah this is not bad but it will never top the original ringo version of with a little help from my friends which for me is has always really been the standout track on sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band now that's a hot take i just
4: need-
0: So I'll uh, get in here and let, let Charlie Bat clean up on Sgt. Pepper. Um, this is an album that, um, as strange as it sounds, has actually grown on me quite a bit. I mean, it's thought of as being uh, one of the all-time greats. Clearly, is. But but when I first first couple times I heard it, I, I didn't quite love it as much as everybody else. It really has grown on me. I want to take a, a moment to kind of continue the with a little help conversation. Yeah, I think Cocker's version is fantastic, brilliant. Uh, but as I said on the uh, on that episode, I really consider them almost two different songs. The way that they're I- interpreted, this is such a bright and and bouncy kind of tale of friendship. And Cockers is just, just so desperate. It's just, it's a different kind of version. I love. I also love uh, Ringo and, and this with a little help and, and the way that Jeff alluded to that the song is structured vocally. You know, it's all Ringo in that first verse, and then the second one is but John and Paul are responding to him, and the third one, Ringo's responding to them, answering them. It, it's just fantastic. And the song that is not necessarily silly, it's not, you know, one, one of the sillier songs they wrote for Ringo. It, it, it's a song, it's a heartfelt song that he just knocks it out of the park vocally. Uh, so I do love, with a little help from my friends, my, my uh, again, outside of A Day in the Life, which uh, I'll probably leave it Charlie to, to, to kind of dig into, song that I I truly love, and I think Lenin has well, Lenin has said bad things about many of his works through the years. Depending on what day you catch him, right? But "Good Morning, Good Morning" I think is a fantastic song. Fantastic listen, song. Listen,
1: listen to the kick drum on that song. That's the most amazing kick drum you've ever heard.
0: That and and the horns, the the brass sounds so thick and chunky. And I I guess they 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 they, they processed it so much, limiting it and compressing it, and limiting it and compressing it. The way that those the brass sounds is so unique to that song, and as Jeff mentioned, I, I think Ringo's playing a double bass on I'm Good Morning to get that kick uh, in Good Morning. The time signatures are are all over the place across the song to kind of fit the, the the rhythm that John had written into the lyrics. Paul handles the guitar solo, I believe, on on Good Morning. Good Morning, it's great, and Paul's got a good bass line. It's it's buried a bit in the mix, but that's an interesting portion of it too. I I just love Good Morning, Good Morning. <laughs>
4: Time for tea and meet the wife. Somebody needs to know the time, glad that I'm here. Watching the skirt, you start to flirt. Now you're in gear. Go to a show, you hope she goes. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay.
0: Uh, getting Better, a, a, a Paul song. Uh, just a brilliant, fluid, melodic bass line. And much like, uh, uh, we can work it out, right? The, the optimism of Paul and some of the pessimism of John, his little contribution, you know, it couldn't get no worse uh, in, in Getting Better. And some of the John lyrics, that I used to be cruel to my woman, uh, beat her and kept her apart from things that she loved. Um, that, that's not something you do necessarily think you'd hear in a Paul Uh, vocal track but it's some of the John contribution I think to to the song and 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 getting better is one of the highlights for me uh what else one one other uh, she's leaving home I I I like she's leaving home I do especially that counter melody that John sings in in the chorus while while Paul is on uh you know doing his she's leaving home um, inspired by a, a true story of a teenage runaway who I think later would say that she was shocked at how accurate some of the lyrics were that, that they kind of invent, I don't say invented, but sort of created the story for her on she, She's Leaving Home. There's just a, a really beauty, a haunting beauty to, to that song too. I,
1: I don't trust people who say that they don't like She's Leaving Home because it's too <laughs> saccharine. I, I love that song. No, it's the beautiful. The only thing about that song that 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 mildly bugs me, and this is like one of those lyrical quibbles that maybe not that important, is that uh, that last verse where it's you know you build up this really really compelling tale, and then it ends with she is having fun. Fun is the one thing that money can buy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, God, if you could just <laughs> have come up with something a little bit more profound than fun. Oh, oh but, you would have carried it all the way home.
2: No, because so 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 much of this album lyrically is just com- lifted from things around them. Mm-hmm. Good morning, good mornings from the Cornflakes Kellogg's. commercial. Yeah. A day in the life is largely taken from uh, reports in the newspaper. There were four thousand holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. They couldn't work out where they were from. Um, the she's leaving home is, as you say, it was taken from a newspaper report, and that was the line from the parents they said she, you know they, they couldn't cope with it because they said she's having fun this is oh. fun to her and we're so upset um so i i i think that that is in there for a reason um i mean All maybe right. maybe, maybe you think correct. it should have- <laughs> no i mean if you think it, it doesn't work anyway that's fine they weren't under any obligation to copy verbatim what was in the newspaper.
1: I just thought it was like a cop-out lyric that like McCartney came up with because he couldn't think of anything better. But if it was something that was in the article, that redeems it at least halfway in my mind.
2: It is true, it, it is interesting with this record that just how much they borrowed lyrically mm-hmm. the, the being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is taken almost verbatim from an old Victorian poster that they saw on a cafe in Seven Oaks in Kent um, that they were doing what, what a lot of bands do now um, especially more avant-garde bands which is to take lyrics from elsewhere and, and work around them but that wasn't a normal Beatles thing up until this point
0: yeah and I want to mention just quickly on a day in the life and then I'll turn it over to, uh, to, to Charlie is uh he mentioned on you mentioned on Revolver the way Ringo's playing is so dynamic and, and certainly in a day in the life the way that his his drums are answering John's lines in that final part little fills little beats it's just brilliant and um there's there so many little things on revolver in sergeant pepper and even into the future where ringo's drum playing is is, is not just it's not just a backbeat he's not just providing that to the song he's providing um he's playing more like an, an accompaniment he's, he's adding these little bits and pieces that really uh bring out the best in the song and certainly that's true in a day in the life
1: I think this is his best drumming album, and I think this is the album where you realize that no one else could have done this that that there's not a single beat misplaced and there's not a single sound misplaced. Now, this isn't all just achieved by studio engineers. This is Ringo sitting there and like you know adjusting the tuning on his heads mm-hmm. to just get it just perfectly slack enough. I think of the way that the drum sound on the fills in with a little help from my friends where it's like do 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 and doing doom doom. Doo,
0: doo, 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 doo boom boom right boom boom boom
1: and again it's all different notes different tones just different slacker sounds than you would normally hear on drums and it 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 has that, that kind of almost a droopy hangdog thing that plays perfectly with the song and then you know contrast that with something like good morning good morning which is tight as a whip snare just bam 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 um he knew what he was doing no one ever gives him credit for it he doesn't speak up for himself this is the album, if you want to hear, you know, why was Ringo Starr truly a fantastic drummer? Man, I don't even like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that much as a Beatles album compared to the rest of them. But, man, this is the album where you hear what he could bring. Charlie, it's the floor is yours.
2: The first thing to say is that henceforth, because of Jeff, political beats is canceled.
0: Thank you very <laughs> much for listening. To- We're going out on a high note at least.
1: Well, you know what? You know, you know the timing is right. I got, I got other things <laughs> to worry about now.
2: I think this is a misunderstood album. In some ways, it's not. Tomorrow never knows, taken to its logical conclusion, as I said earlier. The psychedelic thing is overplayed because of the cover and the "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds" and being for the benefit of Mr. Kite moments. I also don't think it's a concept album, and they didn't really either Mm -hmm. mccartney had a loose idea of there being some victorian band and an alter ego and why don't we bookend the record and segue into track two but if, if you look at what he actually said to george martin it was maybe we could have a song at the beginning and a song at the end and we'll do lots of sound effects and stuff and this is not thought through in the way that other concept albums have been. What it is, uh, Parche Jeff Blehar, is the most intricate, the most inspired, perfectionist-driven group performance in the history of rock and roll. And it, it's short. In some ways, it, it echoes their early stuff. The first side, yeah. which has seven songs on it, is 19 minutes and 50 seconds, not your usual concept album length. The tracks feel five minutes long, but they're not. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is two minutes 37, with a little help from my friends is 244, fixing a hole is two minutes 36. And when I say perfectionist driven, I do mean McCartney. Uh, Hard Day's Night was a John album. This is predominantly. A Paul album. As with Hard Day's Night, John's contributions are so good Mm -hmm. that it creates this perfect whole. But it is a Paul album. And it has more in common, I think, in some ways, with the second side of Abbey Road than it does with Revolver. It's not just that Paul is writing half the songs, more than half, it's that he is controlling the studio. This is the point at which he becomes quite annoying in some ways to the other members of the band. But I'm really pleased that he did his bass playing is sublime uh they di'd the bass for the first time that means they uh, use direct injection they put it straight into the desk rather than micing up an amp Mm -hmm. that gives him a bigger sound i don't know how he maintains both the power and the melody on this with uh the poppiness that marks his uh his playing This is a good Beatles album to listen to in another room. If you put it on and turn it up loud and then leave the room, close the door, go somewhere else, all you'll really hear is the bass, you will understand why he is so well respected and looked up to as a bass player. Uh, It's in some ways also not a band record in quite the way they were before. Revolver, as I said earlier, it is still a band, but Sgt. Pepper, it's... um, it's a collective led by Paul. They are artists. The studio is one of their instruments, and they weren't all there all the time. Uh, a, a lot of it was was recorded with Paul putting down tracks with Ringo and then everyone building on them slowly with Paul ordering everyone around, uh, recruiting George Martin to his side. Um, I think this is a, is a high point. The only other point I can see at which you hear this level of, vocal perfection, instrumental perfection, arrangement perfection, um, is on the the singles that preceded it, which we talked about, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, and then later on Abbey Road. You don't get this on the singles afterwards, you don't get it on Magical Mystery Tour, which isn't a real album, but sort of is. Um, And as a a feat of recording engineering, it is also an amazing accomplishment. Uh, They're recording this on a four-track tape machine, And then they're bouncing down the four tracks to other tracks. Uh, And they keep doing this and they keep doing this. uh, Primitive way of recording by today's standards. But it is glorious, especially the remastered version that Giles Martin, George Martin's son, uh, did for last year. I don't normally like people playing with the Beatles back catalogue, but you really must listen to this. Not only does he manage to clean it up and bring out some of the qualities that were lost on the original recording, but he essentially does for a stereo recording what the Beatles did with their mono version back in 67, and I think it's better for it. Um, And in some ways, the reason this is such a brilliant album, other than the the songwriting, the performance, the perfectionist uh, impetus that McCartney provides, is that they were using by today's standards, primitive equipment. I mean, it is, it's so easy now when you're recording to say, well, I want some echo. Okay, well, I'll go to my channel strip <laughs> in Pro Tools and I'll add some. Or or I will send my signal out to the outboard that every other great studio has. Uh, but Abbey Road in 1967 was not equipped to do that, which meant two things mark this record. One, is Abbey Road's equipment is largely bespoke in 1967. The engineers are still making it themselves. So you do get a sound there that you don't get out of other studios. But the second thing is when you are inventing signal processing, which they were for most of this record, you can't draw on techniques and equipment that other people have. You have to invent it from scratch. And that's why it sounds so odd, I, this is this is a process that no one else used before and no one else used afterwards uh, because they were making it up as they went along. Uh, and they weren't clicking, you know, file, save ass, oh, we'll use this on next year's recording. Um, I think that it is also an album on which John and Paul do more writing together than they would uh, later on. Uh, And that they had for a little while with a little help from your friends is probably the best song on the album. They wrote that together a day in the life. They didn't quite write together, but it has enough of each of them uh, that it is both a John and a Paul song. Um, And that comes through. It it, it is a a masterwork in my view. uh, And Jeff is sadly, sadly mistaken. (laughs)
1: Does anybody want to say anything about A Day in the Life before I get fired from my own show?
2: No, I'm going to leave this one to you because I I firstly want an excuse not to have to fire you if you're going to be nice about it. (laughs) And secondly, I think, having heard you talk about this before, I think you're probably better equipped to uh, lionize this, this track.
1: Okay, well, okay. A Day in the Life is a song that listen if i have to explain to you as a listener what a day in the life is then we have failed you as 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 a show political beats um well you know, maybe we haven't. Maybe we can be the first person that will ever, ever play the song "A Day in the Life" for you. This is the signature moment of the Beatles. This is the moment where John uh, starts. He starts with the song again. You know, as as I think it was Charlie who pointed out. You know, they took this from reading the papers. And I read the news today. Oh boy, he's writing about his a friend of his. In fact, a, a social friend, uh, a guy named Tara Brown, a socialite who had died in a car wreck, or actually a motorcycle wreck. Uh, you know, about a lucky man who who made the grade. I think he changed the line to he blew his mind out in a car, but it was a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the way John sings about this is in the most disinterested, most uh, kind of you know, emotionally <laughs> sedated way, suggesting that he's he's basically become completely inured to the everyday phantasmagoria of modern life, that he, he's, he, he's through with it all, that, that nothing reaches him anymore. And that's, that's why the, the lyric has such power when he says, you know, he talks about all the bystanders just, you know, he's just gawking at the car scene because they think that the victim is famous, you know, and then there's that, that turnaround, that lovely moment where he sings, I'd love to turn you on. And, you know, we think of that as kind of like a hippie phrase from the 60s. But but in the context of 1967, what that meant wasn't just, you know, hippie jargon that's now fallen out of use. What, what John Lennon was saying there is, just like, I want to wake you up. I want to awaken your emotions, my emotions. I want to awaken our moral and spiritual lives. He's Timothy Leary. He's Timothy Leary, yeah. but Timothy Leary is <laughs> He's, he's much less flaky than Timothy Leary, frankly, all right? Because I don't think this has to be interpreted as some sort of... All right, talk to Robert. Robert. He, no, that's even worse. <laughs> dr. Robert was irresponsible. Dr. Robert spiked people's dr- drinks. You know, Dr. Robert was, he was like the dentist who gave out, like, psychedelics to people at dinner parties, right? No, 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 no. Lennon is pleading with not only the listener, but with society saying, please wake up. I want to turn you on. And then you have this crescendo. This comes in, you know, the, the famous orchestral crescendo about which so much has been written. You know, the, the Beatles invited all of their friends and, and, you know, their family and, you know, the Rolling Stones came on down. They even filmed it. It was part of the video that they recorded for the song. It goes juju, juju, juju. They, they told the, the strings, uh, the, the, the orchestral, players to here's your starting note, here's your ending note. However you choose to get there is your call, but you have this many seconds with which to do it. And so what they ended up coming down with, which is one of the you know the most legendary musical cacophonies in the history of rock music. And then boom, Paul woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, and then this very brisk, choppy keyboards it's a completely different song this is the 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 dynamism that comes from combining these these two completely different styles he seems like he's awake he seems like you Mm -hmm. know he's up and he's alive but then you think about it and you're like well is it is it the workaday drudgery of everyday life that he's depicting and then that last line was you know i ran upstairs and i had a smoke and i went into a dream i think we're pretty clear on what that smoke contained it was not just a normal cigarette mind you and then boom that final verse Uh, i read the news today oh boy 400 holes in blackburn lancashire and though the holes were rather small they had to count them all now they know how many holes it takes to fill the albert hall pure what absurdism i don't really know what that means i think that is the moment where they simply give up on rational meaning and they just go back to the i love to turn you on phrase and the final build-up, the crescendo, the crescendo, the crescendo, and where does it end? It ends with 17 people. When you when you get to you know, the way they they double tracked it and double tracked it and double tracked it, playing what's the chord? Charlie, tell me what's what, what what's the key? E. It's E. The giant E major chord. And what does it represent? I think it represents triumph. I think it represents a final triumph over the mundane. A triumph over the sort of enervating, soul sucking drain of society, a way to break free from it. It is an actual attempt to make a spiritually meaningful plea to people to look beyond uh, an everyday society that seems determined to suck the joy out of your life and the meaning out of your life. And it comes in a song that is, what, you know, five minutes long. And yes, I just spent the amount of time this song actually (laughs) runs talking about the song. But it's that good. It's that meaningful. It's that important. It's a day in the life. You've heard it. If you haven't, you know, Jesus, stop this thing and put it on right now.
4: I read the news today, oh boy. 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. Though the holes were rather small They had to count them all Now they know how many holes it takes to fill the hole
0: And the recording technique, by the way, at the end, to catch all, I think it's 53 seconds of that chord. I mean, just the sustain into the very end, and you hear the rustling paper and the squeaky chair in the background, uh, Kind of, the, you know, the compression, the, everything that had to go in to, to capture that the whole way through. And then also, real quick, the, I'd love to turn you online. Seems like a, a, a John line. Was that contributed by Paul, I thought, I read?
2: Yeah, well, they sat together and wrote this. the... Parts of the song were unfinished at that point, obviously, and 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 they and they looked at each other when I think Paul came up with it and said, "Should we? Should we do this?" And they giggled. Um, <laughs> it, oh,
1: we're really taking the chance now. Well, they were taking a they chance. It did get and, them banned. And as it
2: happened. It was banned by yeah. the British government, yep, at least from the radio. So, and they knew that. But I mean, you know, the Beatles in 1967. Who cares? <laughs> But it was worth it. I mean,
1: it was it was worth it. The,
2: the the engineering point you make about that last chord, Scott, is an interesting one. If you look at the compressors that they were using in Abbey Road at the time, because they were valve based until the nineteen sixty nine, they often took a little time to warm up. And in, mm. when they were recording their early singles, uh, "She Loves You," for example, and um, when the, "From Me to You," and and when they're recording, it won't be long, which just comes in at, at hundred miles an hour they had a problem because the song, when they were mastering it, the song would start, and you would hear this very slight ramping up of the compressor and the limiter mm. as the valve warmed up, and so what they had what they had to do was develop a system that would they would h- play the song into the compressor at its maximum volume, then they would hold the compressor at that point so that when they started the tape for the mastering process, the compressor was already at its maximum capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's what they had to do here, because otherwise it wouldn't have been so satisfying. You would have heard this sort of, instead of bam, you'd have heard this bam. (laughs) It wouldn't have have quite had the same effect. And I think it's just worth pointing out, without going too much uh, into the details of this, how difficult, it was to make this album. Yeah. I mean, we are, we now live in a, in an environment in which somebody with a MacBook pro and a copy of logic pro X and a small, you know, two in two out, um, analog to digital converter with a lightning cable and infinite tracks, providing you have enough Ram and plugins to make them sound. Okay. Uh, can produce a record and master it themselves. Really? Um, they didn't have that. I mean, they, they were doing this, this work on, you know, a four-track tape machine, and yes, a bunch of nice stuff in a beautiful room with a lot of people who were very accomplished and really, really lovely microphones. And you know that, that really that stuff matters. People forget this now because they think, well, I've got a copy of you know SoundToys plugins, but it was tough, uh, and to to get this done um, took everything that the people involved had.
0: It's Political Beats, our part two, look at the career of the Beatles. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Charles C. W. Cook with us at Charles C. W. Cook, editor of NationalReview.com and author of The Conservatarian Manifesto. Be sure to check out our feed, of course, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or at NationalReview.com.
1: I have a question for you, and I'm going to take this question from Monty Python. What's brown and sounds like a bell? Dung. (laughs) Also, Magical Mystery Tour by The Beatles, which is a hugely disappointing follow-up to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I know we said we weren't going to talk very long about Sgt. Pepper's and then, of course, talked about it for an hour. (laughs) Um, I have almost nothing to say about this album whatsoever, it's, or it's not even an album. It's a right. double EP that was then later turned into an album and has been remained that way in the in the CD format because <clears throat> they stuck on the uh, the otherwise non-albums 1967 singles, "Strawberry Fields," "Penny Lane," "All You Need Is Love," which I think is crap, and "Baby You're Original," um, which it's it, no no you're wrong, um, you're fired, Charlie. Uh, I'm uh on Je- Baby team, You're team is actually the best of the, uh, yes. the you know the best of those two songs. Um, but the first half of it is the six songs for the Magical Mystery Tour EP. Um, I find very little here outside of I Am the Walrus, of course, to be engaging. I only "I am the walrus. I'm going to let someone else tackle that. It's, of course, a spectacularly complex Lennon phantasmagoria. Um, somebody else can probably do it more justice than I can. I will only say this, that the, that the other song on this record that actually grips me and I think deserves more attention than it gets is is George Harrison's Blue Jay Way. Yes, yes. Which always gets dismissed. I have never heard a single song from the 60s or even really from any other era, you know, in my entire collection, which is pretty large, that conjures the same sort of ghostly, haunted, fog-bound mood that this song does. It is is a song where you could literally see like the ghosts, you know, in white sheets floating all over the room. You know, there's a fog upon LA and my friends have lost their way, and you hear the like, oh and it's not even just the sonics, it's the suspensions and the chords, you know, that 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 sort of dour, dreary tone that the sort of classic George um I think comes to the fore here in a song that usually gets dismissed as sort of b-rate second class but i think is i prefer it to certainly the title track or your mother should know and i think i think it's a better song than the fool on the hill even beyond that magical mystery tour is a failed tv program (laughs) and uh, probably the least interesting record of the beatles late career i think far less interesting than let it be even
0: Uh, I will echo uh, Jeff on Blue Jay Way. I think of the first half, of the first EP, that Harrison tune is the most interesting. And you know, he was writing about a real uh, event. He was waiting on Blue Jay Way on this foggy day for someone to show up. Um, the Hammond organ sound, the use of cello—it's it's really evocative. Uh, it's a really evocative track. I, I like Blue Jay Way quite a bit. On the on the second half, I, I remember this in the in the process of, of, of prepping for this likely my my very first exposure to the Beatles was my mom my, my, my dad was born in 56 my mom was born in 57 so they were, you know, a little too young to to get into Beatlemania, I think. But they did have a couple of forty-fives in the forty-five collection that I would uh, that I would sort of go through and listen. And they had all sorts of things, but they did have a copy of the "I and the Walrus," "Hello Goodbye" forty-five. That very likely could have been those two songs. Could have likely been the first two Beatle songs that I that I perhaps ever heard. Uh, and for that reason, I have a special place for both. Um, I don't know if Charlie wants to talk more about "I on the Walrus." To me, it's—I mean, it's—it's it's, it's a bunch of nonsense, really. The, the lyrics, of course, but it sounds so good when you talk about just the—you know—sonically. Earlier, we talked about how nice, at least for me, "Paperback Writer" is, and, and maybe the, the, lyrically it's kind of a mess. "I on the Walrus," though, sonically, from, from a John angle, is is just wonderful. It just sounds so. Dirty and, and the, the the words, the way they play with the melody, uh, is, is fantastic. Hello, goodbye. Uh, the flip side, I also like the I mean, the lyrics are also light and kind of throwaway, but the melody is so strong. Both those songs, to me, and maybe again because I heard them at such an early age, the melody on Hello, Goodbye and and the sound of I Am the Walrus is what makes them good. Um, and, and Jeff briefly mentioned this, but I, I think. Baby or a Rich Man is very forgotten in the, in the Beatles canon as being a, a really fine song. Um, again, as they, as they would do, is two unfinished Paul John fragments kind of slammed together in one song. I love that almost like glam rock swing beat in the verse. Um, I, I love that so much. You could argue
1: that it, you know when it comes to pure rhythm tracks, which is just say bass and right. drums... That's the best rhythm track in the entire Beatles discography.
0: Yeah, uh, Lennon's falsetto, the, the single note chorus uh, from Paul, and the way it, it begins too—percussion, piano, bass—and there's a, vibraph- a vibraphone right at the start. I, I really like "Baby, You're a Rich Man." From- And uh, before I turn it to uh, Charlie, I am Team Jeff on All You Need Is Love. That is one of my least favorite Beatles tracks.
2: I don't think this album is canonical. I sound like a fundamentalist biblical scholar here, I suppose. (laughs) This is part
1: of the apocrypha.
2: (laughs) I'm English originally, though, and this wasn't an English album. Right. This is in the American discography. And so I interact with its constituent parts a little bit differently than Americans do in that it was only once I was in my late teens that I discovered there was an album. The The movie is a disastrous mess, embarrassing, unwatchable, dross. The constituent parts of this album, I think, are wonderful. I don't want to run too far ahead in my implications here, but Paul takes over the single writing duty for a while here. Brian Epstein dies after Sgt Pepper and Paul takes over the band, John hides in his shell. So you have Magical Mystery Tour, Hello Goodbye, uh, you do then have All You Need Is Love and then later you have Hey Jude and Lady Madonna, which we'll come on to. These are these are Paul written tracks. I think the Beatles here are still at the height of their sergeant pepper level brilliance we already established two of the tracks on it were released before sergeant pepper could have been on the record if brian epstein hadn't said no those are penny lane and strawberry fields hello goodbye is a wonderful song the melody is stunning there's an energy to it it's nicely produced you say- on the hill, just haunting. I like All You Need Is Love. I like the remaster a lot more than I like the original. I don't fault George Martin for that. This was an odd hybrid recording because it was the finale of a, uh, I think, the world's first ever satellite link-up show yeah, called Our World, I think. And so half of it was pre-recorded and there were a few overdubs, but half of it was live uh it's odd in that regard it did need a bit more work than they gave it but i like it i like the chorus i like john's voice on it i am the war is a psychedelic classic i am the war is what people along with magical mystery troll is what people think sergeant pepper is in terms of psychedelia Uh, i think magical mystery is terrific too baby you're a rich man again lost song a song i sometimes forget exists uh your mother should know is what John called Paul's granny music. And there there are some <laughs> famous examples of this. He uh, had
1: a point. He No, had I I point. do understand.
2: It and, and this just comes down to whether you like it or not. So the, the, the Paul Granny music tracks, as far as I see them, are When I'm Sixty Four, Your Mother Should Know, Honey Pie, Martha My Dear, Um But And and Maxwell's Silver Hammer. But but I like that. I, I I like the melody, and and this is melody. It's it's pure melody. He's remembering back to the music his father liked. His father instilled his love of music in him. His father played the trumpet, um, and he, he Liverpool had quite a thriving. Uh, I don't know what to call it I wouldn't say vaudeville that's, that's too much but show tune scene and, and in part because it was a port and it was a port that was linked very closely to America and to New York and so a lot of Broadway style songs made it uh, into the McCartney household I I think it's a, it's a good song it's an interesting song I wouldn't want it not to be there and then again I like Blue Jay Way too I like the Harrison contributions so I'm... Um, I'm pro this, although I don't think it's an album, and I don't accept it as an album. I see this as, as an, a period in which the Beatles are trying their hand in various different media. And I like what they're doing, with the exception of the movie, which is, should be deleted.
1: <laughs> All right. So uh, who, which of us wants to find a way to uh, pithily and briefly summarize uh, a 30-song record, uh, which is what we next have to deal with? Uh, that's that's right. Uh, we're, we're talking about the White Album. But uh, before we get there, perhaps we should deal with Lady Madonna because I know Charles wanted to say something about this. The, the short version is that the Beatles, led by George Harrison's social calendar, I might point out, kind of sort of struggling to find something to do. Um, you know Brian Epstein. They had actually already been into you know the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and transcendental meditation scene, which is a, had been trendy in England uh, in 1967. But when Epstein died, they kind of accelerated their involvement in it. As sort of as they're weaning themselves off psychedelics, they then decide to make a pilgrimage to India to you know you know you know clean up and get right. This became like a trope again. So many something I referred to in our last episode. Like so many aspects. Of the Beatles' career, became kind of like rock cliches. The whole like go to like to the country to like meditate <laughs> and like hang out with your guru is become a thing, and the Beatles really pioneered that. Um, but before they left, they recorded a few songs to release, you know, to cover the cover the field while they were gone, and the result was a single called "Lady Madonna," backed with uh, a Harrison song called "The Inner Light." And I will say this right now: "Lady Madonna." Fine, fine song, perfectly sturdy melody, love the uh, you know the piano, a nice barrel house roll to it, but the inner light is the better song, and uh, the, I inner, hate light the is, inner
2: light the uh,
1: inner light the inner light is the better song, and to me, it 's not very close, and again, another argument that I remember having with you
2: uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, you 're very wrong about this,
2: I just think it 's sprawling nonsense, the inner light to, lady Madonna is is a good song i don 't think it 's a classic it 's a good song why where i find this release most interesting is it lacks john and it marks the divergence of john and paul
1: i think it's interesting is they recorded hey bulldog at the same session and a similar
0: john was sound
2: embarrassed himself. by hey bulldog and he was embarrassed because yoko ono came to the session and afterwards said why are you recording such poppy
3: Oh Brilliant. no! Uh, we're going to have
2: to
1: talk about well, Yoko. We
2: but look, here's what I want to say. I, I, I want to use, I want to use, Lady Madonna to to make a point about where the Beatles were going at this point, because I suspect Jeff and I are going to argue about the White Album and therefore be taken down a different road. <laughs> McCartney, as I said, he took over the band. He was the driving force behind the band after Epstein dies, and this is exactly w- what happened when it came to their singles uh, John didn't really care he mm-hmm. wasn't switched on and so McCartney says oh I've got a song Magical Mystery all right. he's like, oh I've got this song Hello Goodbye alright. oh I've got this song uh, Lady Madonna and John says fine we'll record it and so they record it and it's pretty great it goes to number one um, but it 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 was a harbinger of things to come in that McCartney from this point on with and I won't give away where we're going with this slight maybe um, resuscitation at the end and John are now on different paths um, and if if, if you were, had tried to predict from Lady Madonna the next Beatles album and what it would be like and what it would say and how it was done you would have been disastrously wrong
4: Lady Madonna
0: I uh, I I, I very much couple Lady Madonna and Hey Bulldog in my in my mind. Recorded around the same time and kind of have that same piano swing to it. I I like Hey Bulldog a bit better, and that's forthcoming. Yellow Submarine. Um, The um, you know from there. Do we have to talk about Hey Jude here? I'm trying. I'm just trying to make sure we hit things no, chronologically. I,
1: I think Hey Jude is better <laughs> dealt with at the after the White Album. Okay. I mean, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how I see this. There's so. Okay, Charlie actually did a really good job of queuing this up because this is where things get complicated. There yeah. are a lot of threads that are coming together here. Yoko Ono. How oh God, we got to talk about Yoko Ono. Um. The short version is, is that John's marriage had always been kind of you know a difficult one. Cynthia Lennon, foundering on the rocks. In 1967, he meets Yoko Ono, who is an avant-garde artist working in London uh, at the Indica Gallery. Uh, he, she blows his mind, and uh, they quickly begin an affair, a very long-term one and uh, he falls under her spell i don't even know if that's the right way to put it that 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 makes it seem like she's some sort of svengali they fall deeply in love to be honest and and you know, i think they were they were clearly right for each other in some way and, and you got to give them credit for that um, but what what is is also something that has to be acknowledged is that Yoko Ono ends up having a huge influence on the group you know there's sort of been a revisionist trend to say like well Yoko Ono didn't break up the Beatles you know the Beatles broke up themselves well yeah you know the Beatles were headed on different paths their breakup was inevitable but to pretend that Yoko Ono didn't play a huge influence on that is just denying the obvious and here's the most obvious way that it did is that Yoko Ono may have had a lot of bad influences on John Lennon I think in particular they Gotten the heroin use mm-hmm. together, which was not good at all. But what Yoko Ono did is got Lennon off of psychedelics, and he, aw- she reawakened his competitive spirit. Which had really lain dormant, as Charlie just said. Oh, you want to record a song called Magical Mystery Tour? All right, fine. I got no other ideas. We'll just do it. You know, he didn't really have any ideas or strong driving direction. All that disappears with what happens uh, from the White Album onwards. Suddenly, Lennon is back with a vengeance and i think ono has a lot to do with that because ono is sitting there saying you know as as charlie pointed out like why are you recording this silly song you need to do these these important lyrics and lennon's saying well well yeah 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 i can do that and all of a sudden you know the the fire that had always really been there within him has been reawakened and you know what i think yoko ono deserves a fair bit of credit for that because this sort of somnolent dormant lenin that you had heard from i think late 66 onward it seemed to be kind of like going to a dead end it didn't really have a uh, it didn't seem like it had a happy ending uh, i much prefer the angrier more um direct lenin of the late era of the beatles to his psychedelic era however creative some of those songs were um of course, the other thing that needs to be said is that what happens here—just a brief history—is that the Beatles go to India. They, mm-hmm. you know, they take their guitars with them. They, you know, they 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 meditate with the Maharishi. They find out that he's really just trying to, you know, bang, you know, some of the hot chicks that are with them, including Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence, about whom a wonderful song will soon be written. Um, they come back a little bit disillusioned, but with more songs uh, than you could conceivably put onto one album. So what do they do? They record them all. The sessions for these albums, for these, for, for these songs, which would become the Beatles. That's the actual name of the album. It's called the Beatles. We all call it the white album because anybody who always insists on referring it to it as the Beatles is a jerk, who's just trying to be pretentious. It's the white album. 1968, this is the moment the Beatles really begin to fracture. Mm-hmm. There's, they, they're going their separate ways. John Lennon's competitive spirit has been reawakened. They're no longer collaborating in any meaningful sense on their music in terms of songwriting. But they're all bringing such strong songs to the fore that it's impossible to deny the quality of them. And I would say that this is the greatest Beatles album ever released, despite the fact that it is the only Beatles album that has songs that I think are truly appalling. You know, I'm going to say no to wise guys. Nobody ever can defend Wild Honey Pie rationally <laughs> as a great song or anything more than a completely self-indulgent experiment, um, although it kind of works within the context of the album. Um I have so many things to say about this album. This, album, of course, is you know, there's 30 songs. You could spend the entire show on it. I'll try to be brief. I have a compact thesis that I will make a little bit later. I wanted to let everyone else get their thoughts in about the White Album first before I go on what has been a rant that has you know, literally been 20 years in the making.
0: <laughs> well, I... I i'm with george martin here in that this i i think the album could have used a pruning uh, martin wanted a single album if at all possible and they decided to do all all 30 uh tracks for for the beatles uh jeff mentioned you know honey pie a whole lot of side four i i, I don't really have many good things to to say about him i i don't like sitting through Revolution Nine, Honey Pie is ridiculous. Uh, side
1: four may be the best side, Scott.
0: Uh, <laughs> you'll get side. you'll get your chance, um, but uh, you know th- there are some strong tracks. Uh, clearly, uh, as all of them are working apart, I, I, perhaps Harrison's best moment. I know. I, I think uh, Jeff is is not a giant fan, at least of the solo from While My Guitar Gently Weeps, but it might be my favorite Harrison song that he wrote I- I- in the entire time of the band. Um, back in the USSR, how this how this album starts off? You know, this this McCartney track, this homage to back in the USA from Chuck Berry and in California Girls from uh, from the Beach Boys, and I guess Mike Love even even gave him some tips on how to write when they were both in India together. There are some really great things in back in the USSR. One of the tracks recorded while Ringo had quit for two weeks. Paul has the drums on on back in the USSR, straight ahead rock here there's 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 no distortion it's not necessarily a studio creation i mean there are jet engine sound effects of course some really good parks a great vocal from paul i i love that that that, that ringing guitar note in in the final verse which if you listen closely you can hear it's just someone furiously strumming one note to get that through on back in the ussr <laughs> Uh, Glass Onion, um, I love the bass sound on, on Glass Onion, this this kind of chugging, unusual bass tone that Paul gets on on Glass Onion, and and the way that John is kind of throwing everyone, I don't want to say throwing everyone off, just having fun, is illusions and imagery and these red herrings and the walrus is Paul, of course. Uh, Glass Onion is one of my favorite tracks from this, I'm So Tired, a Lennon contribution. This is one... You know, Jeff just mentioned how how Lennon was was kind of getting competitive again. And to me, I'm so tired as one of the tracks contributed to these sessions and the album that that really stands out from from Lennon. Those really long, heavy notes in the chorus and this kind of uh, tension, this, this progression of tension through through the song. Um, what else? Um, your blues. Um, I'm so lonely. I want to die. It's, Um, One of those tracks from the Beatles where, though they were working individually, I think Your Blues is one where it sounds at least like there's four musicians in one room. Working together, it was a Oh, absolutely, are that was yeah. a
1: live taking. They loved doing it. I, I, by the way, I, one of the things I love about Your Blues is that it's 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 totally a genre parody of the blues scene at the time. Right. You gotta understand that, like Cream and Fleetwood Mac, and like all these blues bands were coming out, and so like there's the, this is their idea of like the most ridiculously overwrought, you know, blues song they can think of. <laughs> I'm so lonely, wanna die if I ain't dead already. You know why? And yet. And yet the way Lennon sings it, God, there's like that thing, that, that, that part where he sounds like he means it. Oh, there's yeah. a part of him that sounds sincere yeah. about that song. <laughs> um, that, 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 that mixture of outright ridiculous parody and yet curious sincerity. That's John Lennon. The
4: eagle breaks my eye. <laughs>
0: I'm a fan of uh, Sexy Sadie as well, which was written as John was leaving India. Um, Paul tracks Helter Skelter. It was, it was
2: written as Maharishi, right. and, and they were told they had to change it or they'd be sued.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, oh, oh would, would anybody like me to recite the original lyrics to Maharishi? Uh, we're going to have to bleep every one of them. <laughs> uh, Maharishi,
0: uh, you really want me to go here? Because I can. Well, it's more work for me if you do it. So I guess we can leave it. Out.
1: <laughs> okay. out. Well, you look it up. Uh, a
0: lot of C words.
1: Uh, yes. Trust me on that. Yes.
0: Uh, Helter Skelter, a song written to be as loud and as dirty as possible, succeeds uh, in that way. And uh, I'm a sucker for Rocky Raccoon as well, even though Paul has that American uh, affectation, the, the, the talking blues lyrics. But I like that honky-tonk piano, which I believe was recorded at half speed, just like the uh, uh, the piano in uh, in my life, then sped up uh, again. Um, And I'll toss it to Charlie, I guess.
2: I thought I was going to be the one to say that it should be a single album and upset Jeff. But now I have you as (laughs) well. We can
0: both upset Jeff. This is the fine part of the show. Great.
2: Jeff's now in the minority. (laughs) There are some remarkable moments on this record and George comes into his own yet again. But for me, they were showing signs of becoming ill-disciplined, less interested in looking harshly at their work and starting to hate one another. And some of this record as a result is not up to their standards. I think George Martin saw that. Some of it is badly sung, some of it's badly played, and some of it's even badly recorded when compared to their other albums. It's, now,
1: telling, it's telling that George Martin left halfway through these sessions. It right. never happened before. He quit. And Emmerich quit too, didn't he? Yeah, they, uh, they, they, they literally. Emmerich, Emmerich actually quit. And then Martin went on, like, an unscheduled holiday. He he basically just, like, adios, I'm going to Greece. And he left Chris Thomas, who then, you know, used this kind of leverage his way into becoming a famous celebrity producer himself, (laughs) uh, to take over for them uh, because he was so sick of the bad, bad blood and the really kind of toxic atmosphere in the studio. But, yeah, like, you know, Martin – and then, of course, what comes next is, is, is the whole get back stuff, which we'll get to. Martin was you know, really kind of feeling on the outs during this entire era. Abbey Road was basically his ultimatum to them. It says, I'll right. come back, but you've got to let me do what I do.
2: And, and, and I think this shows. Now, part of this I am willing to own is the result of taste. I like fixing a hole on Sgt. Pepper. I like that it is thought through at every point, that it is engineered properly uh, for every instrument, that it is a, a, or be it more complex, all my loving style production. And most of this album, the White Album, is not like that. They're often not playing on each other's songs, Mm -hmm. which can be a problem because yes, Paul is a multi-instrumentalist, but he's not as good a drummer as Ringo. (laughs) And yes, Paul can play guitar, but not like George. And yes, George can play bass, but not like Paul. And so on and so forth. And even John Lennon, who was not the world's greatest guitarist, had a way of playing rhythm guitar that was unique. And so they're not doing each other's overdubs, and they're not all contributing the vocal parts that they usually do. And that doesn't just come through in the performances, but it also comes through in the writing, in that it took... The whole band to work out how to uh, get every song uh, into its best format. Now, I'm not dismissing the moments of genius on the record, which are many, um, and and most of which, unlike on Sergeant Pepper, come from John or George. The yes. highlights for me are dear Prudent, Glass Onion. Happiness is a Warm Gun, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, I'm So Tired, Piggies, Julia, Sexy Sadie, Long Long Long, Revolution. There are some lovely McCartney songs, Blackbird and I Will in particular, and I do like Back in the USSR. It is a superb album, uh, but it upsets me in a way because you can hear how fractious things are on the album. And you can also hear signs of a group that is not willing anymore to look harshly at its own output in the way that it once did. There really is no excuse, as Jeff said, for Wild Honey Pie. There's not much of an excuse for Don't Pass Me By, except I imagine Ringo wanted a song to sing other than Good Night. <laughs> There's no excuse for Rocky Raccoon, which doesn't belong on a beatles album even though it's entertaining the bob dylan again i i disagree with his his timing here but bob dylan said to them this is your first non-self-conscious album and as a matter of taste i think that's a downside uh not an advantage so of course i love the white album Of course, I think it is better than most albums that have ever been released by anybody. But I think George Martin sat behind that glass and saw clearly what was happening Mm -hmm. and what the result would be. Um, I would just say before I hand this over to Jeff that there, there are, oddly enough, moments of unity and perfection on The White Album that are superior to almost everything else they ever did. And one of them comes in happiness is a warm gun
1: yes but that's that's one of the very few true ensemble tracks on the record. right
2: but again you see if if now it's possible martin would not have been able to to mold them into doing that for 14 tracks and and maybe the maybe what i'm asking here is historically impossible maybe this was the only way that you were going to get those songs out into the public mind but i listened to happiness is a warm gun and i imagine what could have been, because there is not a single second of that song that isn't perfection. There's no guitar buzz. There's no noise in the background. There's not a, a, a harmony that's off a little bit. And the Be- Beatles did make mistakes on the record and leave them on there. Um It's perfectly crafted. I mean, yes, it's three songs. Um That is a Beatles song that is that was Manifested from idea into final product as well as anything they ever did, and that's just not the case with a lot of the songs on the album. Which you can tell because if you listen to the anthology demos and then you listen to the final products, they're a lot closer when it comes to the white album than they are
4: elsewhere.
1: You know, it's telling that Charlie Sides happiness is a warm gun because that's exactly the song that McCartney used at the time when he tried to convince the Beatles to go do the whole get back, let it be live thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Their experience recording that, they had to work on that song. That song had some really crazy rhythm changes. You know, that and Martha My Dear are two of the most rhythmically irregular songs the Beatles ever recorded. I love both of them, and I think it's also very telling that they follow one another um, on the album. Uh, that was the song that he used to say, like, hey, you know, we can still do this. We can be a, a team. We're still a team, aren't we? Well, as it turned out, maybe not. Uh, but <clears throat> that was like, one of the very few moments of actual unity on this record. Now, listen, if I had to talk about all my. Like slate pitches and hot takes when it comes to the White Album, (laughs) Uh, we'd be here all day. I I have so many of them. I think While My Guitar Gently Weeps is a a disaster, a a ponderous disaster. I think Helter Skelter is one of the worst songs the Beatles ever recorded. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. I I don't care that McCartney is like, ooh, here he is doing heavy metal. I think it's just the, the most ponderous and messy piece of crap that they ever did. I think Long, Long, Long might be one of the best songs in this record. My hot takes can go, it doesn't really matter. What matters the most about the White Album is this, is that it's the most brilliantly sequenced album in rock history. Never Before and Never After has a piece of work so utterly lacking in any sense of unity in its component songs, covered its own weaknesses, by mere presentation of the music, I have tried to rearrange that album 10,000 different ways. Everyone has. Every fan of the Beatles has done the, you know, the proverbial experiment where you, like, you reduce it to a single album, as Scott talked about, or like rearrange the songs. I can't do it. The ordering and the pacing of it is perfect. There are so many wonderful little touches that spring out at you. There's this hidden logic to the record. You get one Harrison song per side, one Ringo song per disc. Never more than two Lennon or McCartney songs follow one another in a row. Then you have like the animal sequence. There's the Blackbird, Piggies, Rocky Raccoon. And then there's that, that contrast between Helter Skelter. Like, I got blisters on my fingers. And then Long, 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 which is so quiet and so soft that you almost don't even hear it unless you're intently focusing on it. And again, I will point out long, 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 this is one of the finest songs that Harrison ever wrote for the Beatles. This is his best song on the album. ¶¶ But you could keep going, you know, that jump cut from "Bungalow Bill, you know, to While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And then there's that way that cry baby cry tails off into the little, can you take me back where I came from thing that haunts me in my dreams. And running with that the entire juxtaposition of that whole childhood dream suite at the end of the white album just blows me away and yes that is what i see it as it's it's a dream so like cry baby cry you know that that that's a nursery rhyme that's the kind of thing that a mother will sing to her baby as she's rocking him to sleep you know cry baby cry Make your mother sigh, but it's so inexplicably ominous. Like there's like a, a horror that's lurking in the shadows behind the, these happy images of the Duchess of Kirkcaldy and her Duke. You know, it's it's that that dissonant piano, the way the the way the piano resolves itself before moving on in every verse, and then immediately as you you go to sleep, you know, you're old enough to know better. Then you go into that little, can you take me back where I came from, Link? which is a direct segue to childhood, and then The Nightmare. And that's exactly what I see as Revolution 9. And I adore Revolution
2: I 9. do too, for the record. I would have uh, every- left it on.
1: I would have left it on too. Everybody... It's 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 a commonplace to say that Revolution Nine. Well, that's clearly the worst Beatles song ever, the one that should have been omitted. Revolution Nine. If you have any experience with avant-garde music, and I have a lot, Revolution Nine is is actually so much better for somebody who was actually completely unpracticed in the art um, uh, of a representation of actual avant-garde music than all of the professionals, the actual sort of. The ones who had gone to conservatory to do this music, this sort of, you know, uh, Varesian, you know, music concrete kind of stuff. This is powerfully compelling. And I, I think of it as a harrowing plunge into this. Kind of nightmarish abyss of childhood dreams. If you think about all those mama, dada, gaga noises that Len and Ono are making and these random sounds of TVs and radios that fly in and out of the picture, the way a small child will like pick up on all sorts of oral input without being able to sort out and filter it or know what it means. You know, the same thing with the sounds of crackling flames and screams. It can scare the living. Out of you
2: it's terrifying uh, I, I i i once uh, left the beatles playing when i went to sleep and was woken up in a dark room by that song it's terrifying, terrifying. I, I say that as a 33 year old reasonably well-adjusted man
1: <laughs> it is a terrifying piece of music and uh, that's brilliant i i i have always had a, a an unusual affection for music that can take me to an emotional extreme, uh, to places that I don't go and maybe necessarily don't want to go. I don't want to be take. I, I I kind of actually want to be taken there against my will in a way because I know deep down that I would never voluntarily go there. Like I'm never gonna go put on Revolution Nine in isolation just to hear that song to, you know, be freaked the hell out. Okay. But in the context of this album, to be taken on that ride, it—boy, rem- here's a funny analogy. Um, everybody, this is this is almost a silly analogy. Everybody remembers Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder, that little sequence when they're writing. In the in the boat, you know, uh, and there's these images flashing across the screen as Gene Wilder, as as you know Willy Wonka, is singing this very incredibly disturbing song. And you see like chickens getting their heads chopped off, and like violence and blood. And you're like, why is this in a children's film? Well, because children have fears too, and that's what this song to me has always been about. Um, <clears throat> it scares you to death. It, it it what's what it feels like to be vulnerable, young, naked, alone, and afraid. It's music that can discomfort you and then put you into a heightened emotional state. And, and then, of course, after it all, what do they do? They send in Ringo. Here's Ringo. He's gonna reassure you that it's all right. Come on, sh- stop crying. Go back to sleep. Good night, Good night. Everything is wonderful. We love you. Good night. Now, I don't know if anybody else has ever seen the last part of the White Album this way, the way that I do. But I have, I have seen it this way since the first time that I ever heard it. I think it's brilliant track, brilliant stuff, and I think that it's the placement of these songs, their contextualization amongst one another that makes this record so wonderful. Can you think of any other context in which Revolution 9 and "Good Night," two songs that were written completely independently of one another, would have worked so well? on any album? No they, they just they happen to fall into place serendipitously. So that, that's why I love this album. I, I think that it, it, it's an album that has always kind of validated one of my central theses of music, which is that the album as art form is is equally as important as the individual song that it is important to put things together into a puzzle into a, a, a structure, an architecture, a jigsaw, if you will, that creates a larger form that is maybe even greater than the individual pieces. And, of course, there are so many individual pieces that are worthy of merit. I, I'll notice that not a single one of us said anything about what I think could be the, maybe one of the four or five greatest songs Paul McCartney ever wrote for the Beatles, which is Blackbird, you know? This is a quiet acoustic song. He wrote it about Linda when he had first met Linda McCartney. And he basically, I think, the first night he first night he spent the night with her. He he walked out afterwards, sat on the balcony, and he he just started playing this tune, blackbird singing in the dead of night. And it's one of the most quietly perfect things that he ever wrote. It's just a little piece, that a little stone that fits into the giant arch that is the White Album. <laughs> That is, if you ever were to pick it apart piece by piece, yes, it is flawed. There are so many parts of it that could be individually criticized. As I said, wild honey pie is inexcusable in its own terms. Savoy truffle, oh, please, George, no, no more Savoy truffle. But as a whole, I'm so grateful that this exists. And as a totality, it's one of the albums I get the most appreciation out of listening to as a whole when I'm willing to devote that full hour and a half to it.
0: Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Charles, C.W. Cook with us on our Part 2 of The Beatles Find Charles at Charles C. W. Cook, editor of NationalReview.com, author of The Conservatarian Manifesto. We still have a ways to go here on part two of The Beatles. Um, So next, guys, do we slide to the... the, the... No, before we go any further,
1: we need to talk about what may be the single greatest song in The Beatles' career. And I've said that so many times, but I do think that the non-album single that came around this time uh, may be the heyday. The farewell, rather, for the the greatness of the Beatles, and maybe in a way the most audacious thing they ever did. It's Hey Jude. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a very important song to me for a lot of reasons. Uh, Some may, which may become even more um, apparent in a couple of days. Uh, I love this song with all of my heart. I think it could be the best single song. There's so many that compete, but at the end of the day, I think this is the finest thing that Paul McCartney will ever write in his life. I think, Hey Jude, the generosity of spirit, he wrote it for Julian Lennon, you know, to make him feel better uh, because his parents were divorcing, um, he, and he turned it into a universal anthem that everyone can relate to. It strikes a note, a chord that I think in particular is a very kind of a male chord, a masculine chord. This is something that I think a lot of every guy, in a way, can relate to. And uh, Ben, to write this beautiful song and then to tack on four minutes of (laughs) na-na-na's and to somehow make it even better than you would have thought, is uh, audacious in the extreme. It's one of the greatest moments of rock history, and uh, we would be remiss if we didn't speak
0: it. Those non at the end can get, um, could get uh, re- repetitive, and I suppose they are in a way. But the the way that McCartney sort of fills in with, I guess you'd call it, you know, just scatting and sort of making, making transitions. Yep. Wow! Wow! It, it fills it out well. Hey Jude, to me is 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 um, yeah, it about seven minutes long. The number of ways that McCartney is able to sort of fill up that time uniquely. Uh, whether it be the way he uses harmonies, whether it be the way the, the bass line carries, whether it, it is that ending, whether it's the orchestration, whether it's the uh, you know the, 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 the what forty people uh, backing vocals, uh, forty people doing backing vocals toward toward the end, it's an amazing um, accomplishment. And you know as you get toward that that four minute uh, end, it's impossible not to get caught up in it. it it's it's a it's a communal effect that the song has, I think, on the listener and sort of transcends even the message of the song, which is, this, as Jeff mentioned, this sort of, hey, it's going to be okay to to John Lennon's son. And so it's an amazing a- accomplishment from from start to finish. And, you know, in the recording of it, listening to it again with uh, trying to with fresh ears this time around, one of the uh, nice things on this is the way this is mixed? Ringo is is so far up in the, in the left channel, the left the left speaker, and I love hearing him get very prominent placement in in a song like this, which is a brilliantly written, brilliantly recorded, brilliant, brilliantly pulled off song from from McCartney.
1: If he played one again, I, I keep saying this about Ringo. But imagine just like one over aggressive fill on that song. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine him playing almost any other drummer might be like a little too ahead, a little too on the beat, a little too trying to like, you know, show off. Ringo just lays back, man. He lays back. He realized I'm not the focus of the song. It's a hymn. It's a hymn. That's right. It's a
2: hymn. McCartney wrote hymns. Let It Be is a hymn. Hey, Jude is a better hymn. And. He invented the Hey Jude genre of songs by bringing the hymn into pop music. There aren't many songs like that before Hey Jude, if any, and afterwards they explode. All Elton John songs, Billy Joel, piano ballads,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, right? Follow the Hey Jude rubric. It's uh, open chords, this one's in F major, and he's playing the triads in his right hand and octaves in his left hand, uh, and moving around on the piano as well as on the bass, between the chords and singing a simple, albeit beautiful, melody over the top. There aren't any songs like that until Hey Jude, and now that's half of songs. Um, as i said in in the first episode this is where the beatles are infuriating if you're a musician now because not only did they invent a whole host of genres but they filled them with the best songs (laughs) right he
1: started he started it and ended it
2: It was not common in 1968 for songs to run seven minutes. It had happened. Now, one of the reasons it's not common is that 45s run about seven minutes. Right. And so it was tough to convince the record company to uh, waste the vinyl. That was the maximum that you could get out of a a vinyl. There are songs that did it. What I'd say was released on two sides, the Ray Charles record. Long, long before the Beatles even recorded their first song, and I think questioned by the Moody Blues.
1: I mean, I I think they actually were were trying to top. They were trying to top MacArthur Park by Richard Harris, Mm. which had been like six minutes and fifty-nine seconds, and had been a number one hit. And so the legend goes, at least that they timed Hey Jude to be like one second longer than that. (laughs) But of course, the the reality is that you know the Beatles can do whatever the hell they want at this.
2: we, we, we mentioned, I mentioned Oasis as well earlier and, and again, this is a song that spawns so many other bands. The, it, the, the trick involved, it's not just that it's a, a simple hymnal piano ballad, it's the recurring, repetitive cycling of chords and building on the top of it mm-hmm. is now common practice for bands. Uh, Oasis massively overdid it. I and mean, if you listen to all around the world, they do that for 10 minutes. That is not what a <laughs> does. And there's not really that good a song underneath it either. But McCartney, by I mean, whether he just, I don't know enough about the recording of the song. I don't know whether he sat there in the studio and said, let's do something crazy, or whether he just said, let's just, they just went with it. I don't know whether it was just a, a, an accident of recording and playing and practicing and arranging. But whatever it was, everyone does that now and and they fade out at the end of the song uh so when you hear it when you were born much later as i was you often don't appreciate that it was new um by the way here's just a fun little factoid about hey Jude. uh when it was released i think uh, the beatles had moved to apple records by this point and they had their own little store and McCartney went down and as a preview for its release painted on the window of the Beatles store the Apple store the original Apple store I suppose uh, a star with Hey Jude written under it oh, no. and the windows were smashed uh, and there was a real backlash because it looked like <laughs>
1: anti-Semitic yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's
2: that's McCartney the naive.
1: Yeah. oh no, hate hey, you. <laughs> oh dear, the National Front is, is what was it? Yeah, the, the the BNP is, is suddenly taking over Apple Records. <laughs> um, okay, uh, you know we don't want to uh, you know linger too long. Here here is what happens next. The short version is that you know again, as I said, on, on the hinge of something like happiness is the warm gut. And also because McCartney, who had been leading the band since Around Revolver, is still like throwing around. He's the guy who came out with Sergeant Pepper. He's the guy who came up with the idea to uh, you know do magical mystery tour. Um, he's the guy who's trying to keep his band going even as, you know, their centrifugal forces seem to be tearing them apart as was happening on the White Album. What is his idea? Hey, why don't we all like do a live show? We'll work up together a new batch of songs. We'll have it taped. We'll we'll do a little documentary on the recording of our new album and our new concert. Then we'll do the show, and it'll be our new album—you know, multimedia extravaganza. Basically, there'll be an album, there'll be a TV show, there'll be, you know, you know, all sorts of you know uh, promotional items. And what do they end up doing? They end up booking some time in Twickenham Studios to sort of rehearse. Uh, in early 1969, the idea here is that they're playing live, no trickery, no more, you know, Summer of Love psychedelic production, you know, gags and techniques. George Martin, at this point, is said, "Listen, you know, good luck to you, bros. I, if you guys don't want me, I'm just gonna let you do your thing. Whenever you decide to come back to record at a real recording studio, then maybe we can talk." Um, and this is where they really end up fracturing permanently. Uh, Yoko Ono and John Lennon are an item. Yoko is there every single day sitting next to John, offering her critical opinions on the other Beatles' songs and how they should play their instruments. Oh, George, why don't you play your guitar like this? Uh, thanks, Yoko. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I'm sure he was less polite than I
0: am. He didn't even um, want to take uh, suggestions from Paul, so I'm not sure how he did it with
1: Yoko. Well, you know, that's the thing. That's actually the, the the story. But if you hear the actual tapes that I have, that was that 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 that's fake news, huh? George did not actually lose his temper with Paul the way it's depicted in the film. He actually lost his temper with John, and they want they edited it out because George. Basically, he's kind of always had a had a brotherly affiliation for John, and didn't want it depicted like that. It wasn't Paul who actually drove him to depart. It was it wasn't Paul at all. It was Lennon's muleishness, and at this point, he was probably as addicted to heroin as he would ever be. Anyways, the get back sessions John, are uh, a low point for the yes, band. Just on
2: that, one thing that's fascinating about that is Paul is in public always. Seen as the nice one, he's the Michael Palin of the Beatles. <laughs> and if you listen to those tapes and you read the transcripts and you read the the book that was written about it that you put me onto, it's true. Now Paul is much more <laughs> overbearing than his public <laughs> reputation would suggest, but he's also genuinely the nice one. And what, what he's I like
1: really trying hard. Yeah, what I find yeah. so
2: funny reading the transcripts and listening to the tapes is. You know, John is behaving so badly, and Yoko is behaving really atrociously badly. And John keeps saying to them, and bear in mind, this is in private, or at least as, as private as you can get with a tape rolling for hours and hours on end. Paul keeps saying in private, hmm, George, don't you think it's a bit odd the way Yoko keeps telling us how to play our song?
1: You know, he's he's try, <laughs> trying to work through it. <laughs> that's the thing. That's, that, 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 that's what... Everybody knows everything about the Beatles at this point. Their story has become such a commonplace, such legend. It's easily available on Wikipedia that it seems like everyone knows the natural narrative. This is actually one of the very few places where I still feel like there's a correction to be made. Mm. People don't understand what the dynamic of the Get Back Sessions was. It isn't. Paul being the overbearing schoolmaster, you know, trying to tell everyone what to do. Yeah, he was a little bit too hands-on. He kind of, I'll be honest, he reminds me of myself, which is maybe one of the reasons I sympathize with him. Me somebody. too. Me <laughs> too. He, he's always trying to be super helpful you know, and like, oh, I got a really good idea. How about you do this? This is a really good idea. But like, if you tell him to back off, he'll be like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to be a jerk. Uh, he just wants things to work. He really wants things to work. And this is why the song "Let It Be" was written. This is why that song is so moving. The, the song "Let It Be," of course, when it originally came out, people thought you know all the references to Mother Mary were Catholic, you know, references to the Virgin Mary, to Mary, or maybe to Mary Magdalene, or something like Horizon that. Or his own mother. Uh, but no it was his own mother and mm-hmm. that's what it was about because it came up at this time when he was fighting with the rest of the beatles everything was falling apart during these sessions he was just you know going to bed thinking like ah crap i'm doing everything i can and nothing seems to be working and he had this sort of very impressive dream where his dead mother, who had died when he was very young and he, he idolized, that's one of the reasons he and John bonded actually as kids, came to him in a dream and said, "Hey, listen, you know, you you have to stop worrying so much about this. You have to stop trying so hard. You just have to let it be." And you know, you know, he, he woke up with that in his mind, and just like he did with yesterday, he took it to the piano, and he wrote "Let It Be" the song, and you know that is i think to to this day either that or i've got a feeling are probably the best things to come out of these sessions
2: it be so he, he couldn't he, let you he,
1: he, <laughs> <with> <laughs> he, he was trying
2: to tell himself to do it but he couldn't there's he two couldn't. reasons he can't let it be the first one is when you're a perfectionist you can still hear the faults mm-hmm. and he can yep. hear them and he couldn't stop himself because he was mostly right when it came to the Beatles yep. the second reason that he couldn't let it be is that and this is in no way to insult Linda because I know they had a perfect relationship and what happened was a tragedy uh But he had not a huge amount more in his life in 1968-9 than music. And still doesn't. And didn't in 1985. And didn't in 1995. His life was Linda and music. Whereas John is completely engrossed in Yoko and all the stuff that they're into together. And he has music in his life, but he also has other interests. George partly wants to go out on his own so he has more independence. He's not... Moving away from music, but he has uh, ambitions outside of the Beatles, and he's also interested in Indian spirituality and culture and so forth. And Ringo has a burgeoning movie career, um, and is at this point tired of playing music anyway. Paul just wants to be in the Beatles. <laughs> That's all he wants, and he can't. You can't, as a result, let it be when you're in that position. So I, I always thought there was a real really sad little coder that he's the one who's, who's giving this advice to himself and anyone who listens to the song, but he's ultimately incapable of following it.
1: I mean, it's the saddest thing of all. And again, I don't recommend anyone listen to the 114 hours. But if you want it, uh, Jeff has it. (laughs) I, if I, yeah, and I gave it, I gave it to Charlie like several years ago, so he's got it too. I doubt he's gone through the whole thing himself because who has the time? But like, yeah, God, it's just so sad to listen to them fight with each other. But I will say this: that in the midst of this war, they're sitting there; they're just all fracturing, you know. Yoko and John dynamic. There's, you know, the Paul dynamic. George wants to be. He wants to be in the band, like not another band he he secretly wishes he was in the band with you know Levon Helm and Rick Danko that that that's his ideal right oh
2: yeah now. he talks about them he talks about them in the way people who have a new girlfriend talk constantly about exactly, their new girlfriend exactly
1: exactly like you know he he's on the Dylan band kick so like these guys are all going in different directions but i honestly think that when they came together and made actual music that was recordable during these sessions it's universally great The worst songs on this album are the ones that are outtakes, which is like across the universe. Mm -hmm. This album eventually came out as the final Beatles album. For those who don't know, Let It Be, 1970. It was released after the fact, after Abbey Road, which is really the last Beatles album, as, as a contractual obligation. You know, the film was going to finally come out. They released this album. The Beatles were already a dead letter at that point. Um, But the stuff was all recorded in early 69. Across the Universe is an outtake from 1968. I hate it. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, The only song from these sessions that was actually recorded that I hate is The Long and Winding Road, which, again, I consider to be up there with Here, There, and Everywhere in terms of McCartney at his his, his most sort of soppily sentimental. But the rest of these songs I like. I really love two of us, which you know McCartney has always insisted was about him and Linda in their relationship, yeah, but has too much valediction in it and too much i don 't know a sense of a longer relationship um, uh, to make me think that it wasn't really about him and John subconsciously you know about their relationship falling apart remembering the good times well, yeah
0: that i mean the line jeff which i think is a brilliant line you and i have memories longer than the road stretching out ahead i love that line and i think that's yeah. clearly about you know john and paul and g- how can that
1: be about linda right.
0: uh, if they only met a year ago that's what i mean so right you-
1: Um, but you know, there's that, I, I, I like, uh, I mean mine, which is George's last song with the Beatles. I love let it be, by the way, I'm just going to make this little nerd point, the album version with the Phil Spector mix, by the way, not normally a fan of the Spector stuff on let it be Spector crushes the sort of more tasteful and restrained McCart or George Martin version of that single. Um, Spector has this incredibly wild guitar solo by George Harrison that is the, the best guitar solo that George Harrison ever recorded with the Beatles. You can find it on the album version of let it be. But the other one that really stands out to me, um, is I've got a feeling. And that's the last song that Lennon and McCartney would ever write together. They did it along the lines of *A day in the life where Lennon brought his part. McCartney brought his part. Um, but it's a live recording, a live track from their rooftop concert. What a muscular song. What a brilliant song. And I will say, um, one of McCartney, McCartney's finest vocals, where he does that thing where he hits notes that even in my limberest, youngest, highest tenor days, I can <laughs> never quite do when you know that that with all these years, I've been wondering along, wondering why nobody told me all that I was looking for was somebody who looked like you. <laughs> There's no one on the planet who can sing that song except Paul McCartney. And I think it's one of the the, the last great moments of the Beatles career um and uh one of those songs that flies under the radar
0: As Jeff mentioned, it's one of those songs that has just an undeniable melody. And even if I haven't heard it for a while, at some point, on our way home, will pop in my head and like, oh, I guess it's time to listen to two of us. That melody just sticks with me uh, over and over and over again. And uh, uh, "Dig a Pony," which is the second track, um, is also, I think, the album uh, tr- album uh, song is is the is the rooftop performance. Um, and it's not. There's not much to it in terms of lyrics. It's 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 Lennon's only really real new contribution to let it be in terms of the songs that were written around this time. There's some old ones that were old Lennon stuff that was also in the mix. Uh, bluesy rock in waltz time, and uh, really nice guitar parts. The song that I I want to spend some time on that I, I just can't believe was not eventually on the final album. Is the
1: other Lennon
0: contribution right. that was his real contribution to these sessions? Is "Don't Let Me Down," which song. spoiler is going to be on my list of five songs uh, in in a bit. "Don't Let Me Down" is an amazing track. Uh, Billy Preston is is all around these sessions. He plays this wonderful electric piano. You know, in terms of a song, this is this is in my mind. You know, John's almost uh, you know a genuine cry to to Yoko. They uh, you know. Don't let me down. I'm I'm kind of going out on a limb a bit here. We love each other. We're deeply in love with each other. But you know, I, I'm also in the Beatles, and we're kind of moving away from that from that partnership to this new partnership. So don't let me down. Um, track was eventually released as a B-side to Get Back. But it's got this wonderful natural-sounding groove to it. Uh, Lennon, uh, we talked that that note that Jeff can't hit from "No Reply." I don't think it's the same note, but it's close. Uh, when she she does be good, gets very low in his range for, for for that note. And George has a great part. His guitar line during the verse—it's a very pretty, fragile little line. And and Ringo, this is one of the last, uh, I think, contributions from all four members playing at, at virtually their peak um, on on this track. Uh, don't let me down is is, is again it's gonna be on my list of five. It's It has, my it has
2: one of the great middle eights in music yep. history as well. John, yes. It, it, yep. yes, 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 yes. John comes in, he says, um, I'm in love for the first time and then Paul goes "Boom, boom, boom, bada boom, bum. Don't you know it's gonna last do it's just That moment was, could have been a a highlight of any album, and they, they just, they scrapped it essentially.
0: Yeah, I I can't believe that did not make. Uh, the final cut, uh, and again, as as Jeff mentioned, yeah, Dig a Pony is 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 uh, is on the album, but his greatest contribution, lines to into do let, let me down. Is, is, is don't I, let me down. And, and,
1: and w- when it's one of these songs, like when you you talk about it, I already envision the clip I have to use, and it is indeed. <laughs> I'm in love for the first time, and that moment. I'm in love for the
4: first time.
1: That is the most one of these lyrical guitar lines that McCartney wrote. And by the way, again, one of the funny things about having the tapes is that you hear the seat, you hear the state that John brought that song into the sessions with. This is one of the reasons why, like, you know, you don't want to listen to 114 hours of the Beatles sniping each other and playing bad oldies covers. But when they get to playing like these songs. It's really fascinating to hear how something like "Don't Let Me Down" came together. They didn't have that at the fu- at the beginning; they just had something like you know John had the "Don't Let Me Down," "Don't Let Me Down" in the verse, and he didn't really know what the arrangement for that would be. And the rest of the band came together and brought it together around him. And it is again one of the just the, the, those magical moments in Beatles history. And I have a question for both of you guys. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the official single B-side version? Or do you prefer that live rooftop version <laughs> where you've got you know, those higher harmonies from McCartney more present?
0: You know, I just listened to that again two nights ago, the uh, rooftop version. And we're, I think Lenin kind of flubs the lyrics a bit, too, on the rooftop version. Um, I would say the rooftop version.
2: Yeah, I think probably the rooftop version. Although I, I do like the reworking on Let It Be Naked.
1: The, the, well, that, that that's of course like a cheat because it incorporates both you know it, it gets the best of all worlds right <laughs> all right well i guess what happens next is that lennon um marries yoko ono poses naked on a couple of album covers uh, i'm glad we don't really have to talk about two versions <laughs> um and then uh decides he needs to release a single about his life and because McCartney, of course, especially after the bad feelings of the White Album and uh, Get Back recording sessions, says, OK, whatever you need, I'm here. Let's do it. I'm your friend. I'm your buddy. We're in a band. We're in a band. I promise you we are in a band together. And and that's really, to my mind, the only thing that explains the ballad of John and Yoko, which I like. And I, I actually, you know, I, I should dislike, but I don't. Because I think it is a pretty funny song, and I do, I do, I have to admit, I love the chorus about, you know, Christ, you know, it ain't easy, you know, the, you know, the way things are going, they're gonna crucify me. As self-regarding as it is, but I'll admit, you know, I, like most people, I, I think that Harrison's B-side, "Old Brown Shoe," is is much better as a song. Hey, yeah. Does anybody disagree with
2: me? I don't think this should have been a Beatles song. I'm irritated that it's a Beatles song.
0: I, yeah, I agree She's, with Charlie. Have been,
2: give me a chance. No, I, think, I think Lennon should have done this on his own. I, am I wrong in saying that only Paul and John play on this record. The
1: only Paul and John play on it. And, and, and I think but to me that's why it's it's kind of important to note because it's clearly Paul trying to placate John. <laughs> he's, he's, he sees him moving away, especially after the bad feelings of the get-back sessions. And he's like, again, people think of, used to think, it's, it's so funny because we know more now than we did back then, but in the early 70s when people talked about the breakup of yes. the Beatles, Paul was the villain. This egotistical maniac who broke up the beautiful band, you know, you know, and now he makes this pop slop. But people didn't realize it was his exact opposite. It's that Paul was just doing everything that he could conceivably think of in his power to keep them from splitting apart, up to and including saying, "Hey John, you got this song, and it's a, it's called literally a song about you and <laughs> your your wife." and okay, and and Ringo and George, they're on vacation, but yeah, okay, you know what, we'll just record it together, and I'll phone them up and make nice with them, and yeah, it'll be our next A-side single, which is like a big deal. He did all that. He did all that because he wanted to keep them together. It's one of these things that just doesn't, even to this day, get enough play or enough credit. Like, Paul was willing to do anything he could conceivably think of to keep them from breaking up, which... I guess takes us to Abbey Road, and this is the end of the road. You know, Abbey Road uh, again, famous album, iconic album, one of the most famous album covers of all time, for sure. Um, this is the album where George Martin came back and said, "Okay, you know what? If you want to do it, I'll do it, but we're going to do it for real, and we're going to do it my way." And I think they all agreed to do it, even though at this point they'd all had enough of one another, because they realized that they couldn't let the get back sessions be the end that they wanted to go out on a high note with an actual album that was real that was well produced that was put together and uh, again there are a lot of people who will say that they achieved that accomplishment and that abbey road is their greatest album people can argue about all these records um you know i talk so much i'll let you guys talk
2: (laughs) abbey road is their greatest album this is the restoration This should be seen as their last album. This is where discipline is restored. I think this is the sequel to Sgt. Pepper. It has different themes. It has a similar feeling of craftsmanship, except John hasn't got the memo. So his contributions are different than they were on Sgt. Pepper, but still far more disciplined than they are. On the White album, and he doesn't ruin everything with his behavior. That's not to say he was especially well behaved during the Abbey Road sessions, but it's nothing like "Get Back." It, it is perfect. The songwriting is sublime. The performances are sublime. The execution—they're now recording on eight track. Mm-hmm. This is the only record they ever recorded on full eight track solid A state.
1: Eight tracks. <laughs>
2: And you get a different sound on this record than any other record because they're not using the RED R-E-D-D valve desks anymore. They've moved to solid state, and so they sound a lot more modern. If you listen to this within the Beatles canon, you could be convinced that they took a break for five years and then came back in 1975 and put it on on tape it, it is a cleaner sound each channel has its own limitation uh limiters and compression units um and it is a different sound they're bringing in moog synthesizers they use more effects than they they have done um and that valve uh quality that is on all the beatles records right from love me do through to uh, the White Album, I, I don't really include "Let It Be" in my analysis of this because it, it was recorded in such a peculiar way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of it's Glenn John, some of it's Phil Spector, some of it's George Martin, some of it's in Twickenham, some of it's at Apple, some of it's not, I just it, a mess. But this is a different Beatles recording setup, and yet <laughs> they lose nothing and gain everything. Side B is a masterpiece it is a medley that runs almost from start to finish unbroken it not quite uh, i i can play every note of that on almost every instrument on there (laughs) Uh, and i do sometimes i this is one of my favorite records to pour a drink and lie on the floor next to some good speakers and just listen to that second sight and then tell it to restart and then tell it to restart once again George on Abbey Road hits Lennon McCartney levels of brilliance. That is the only way of putting it. He has been slowly coming into his own since Revolver, and his songs are expert. But on this album, he is as good as John and Paul at their absolute best. And you can tell that because people think something is a Lennon McCartney song. Right. Famously. Frank Sinatra introduced it. as This is my favorite Lennon McCartney song. It's to annoy George. And Here Comes the Sun, likewise. Steals the show. These are songs that are unparalleled in George's Beatles career and may exceed John and Paul's contributions to this record. And then uh, there are some moments on there, like I said earlier, the beginning of In My Life, where you just want to fall back onto a couch and start crying because it's so beautiful the the moment when the vocals come back in on something after the guitar solo and paul joins george in the background it's one of the great moments in pop music history
1: you mean and all she and all i ever have to do is absolutely that harmony
2: at that moment
4: in the way she knows And all I have to do is think of her Something in the things she showed
2: But the moment, the moment that makes me look roof of the Sistine Chapel is during "Carry That Weight." I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were going to see this. "You Never Give Me Your Money" comes back yes. in temporarily, yeah. and then there's this little trumpet break, and then this George guitar moment. the the, the soundscape clears and George's guitar comes through with this down 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 little down down do 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 little and it's as if the clouds have cleared
1: and then there's that quiet glissando boom boom by the strings and then it goes back to and I never give you my pillow absolutely it is the single most
2: moving moment in the Beatles catalog driving force that second side although it contains john songs as well that second side was mostly edited together and thought through by paul and george martin i think i'm right in saying paul is the only Beatle who attended every single day of the sessions
1: i i have shed many a manly tear at the reprise of you never give me your money on carry that way this
2: is this <laughs> is a, 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 a Sublime album. It's my favorite Beatles album, and it's my favorite album ever recorded by anyone or any group
0: Okay, Scott top that yes, well, I'll start out with my one criticism which is I've never really liked come together and uh, I'm not if it were I don't know if it were left off as a lead-off track I think I'd be okay with it in that in that form Uh, By the way, the other Beatles single my parents had in that 45 collection was Come Together and Something. So that's actually two of the other early Beatles songs that were part of my upbringing. Um, Where do I want to go? Before we get to Side B, Oh Darling is such a fabulous McCartney tune. And the way that it was put... Charlie talked about the care and the precision with which these songs kind of return to on Abbey Road. You know, the O Darling vocal is such a, is a voice shredding performance by Paul, and he took such care to make sure it was recorded and eventually preserved in exactly the way he wanted it to be. If I read correctly, he would get there well before anyone else. He would do one take per day of that vocal performance on O Darling, and if he couldn't do it, try it again the next day. Um, The high notes that McCartney hits in the middle eight of Oh Darling, he hits them with such power. Uh, It's really a tremendous vocal performance full of, you know, the emotional anguish that you can kind of hear in in Oh Darling. I love that McCartney song on on side one. I am a sucker for Octopus's Garden, which is uh, only the second Ringo Starr written song that made it onto a a Beatles album. George uh, uh, adds his opening guitar run there, and what he gives to Octopus's Garden really lifts it up. To being, I mean, on the par.
1: line in my opinion is that like, George wrote three songs on Abbey Road because he really he did a like, lot, contributed a huge yes. amount. He did it, he did because he he was just you know happy to help out his great That's buddy right. Ringo and, and he didn't even care, right? But, but yeah, he, he had so much to that song. It's
0: it's a good song. You never give me your money, which is brought back, of course, and carry that weight. I, you guys talk about how you feel when that is is reprised and carry that weight, which which I agree with. But just hearing. That intro on "You Never Give Me Your Money" hits me in in such a way every single time. Just hearing that piano intro to "You Never Give Me Your Money," um, you know, this is a, again some fragments that are sort of pieced together in the midst of of the of the medley on the on the second side. That that first part with, with the piano, and, which mentions the business issues and the funny paper that the, that both John and Paul and I guess all of them were, were dealing with around that time. That second part with the boogie woogie piano, where it kind of talks about the early days of the of the band and, and trying to hit the top of the charts. And that that uh the third section too is just is just brilliant. Um and then you get to the to the to the close and you know Charlie talks so much about um carry that weight, but that that stretch from golden slumbers all the way through the end. I don't know how you how you write, how you are able to conceive of a of a better end to to this band, um, and yes, it was released before Let It Be, but you know, this was the very last thing on the last, well, almost the very last thing on the last album that they that they recorded. And the way that the, the, the beauty of Golden Slumbers carries into uh, carry that weight, you never give me your money comes back. There's that brass in there. Charlie mentioned how beautiful uh, other parts are, and, and then the end, which which I just love. I love the end. And, and the drum solo from Ringo, which, he, again, he didn't really want to do. They had to coax him to get it out. The the Paul, George, John trading off each other with these lead guitar licks over the repeated love use. Um, the way that Abbey Road ends from Golden Slumbers into Carry That Weight into the end is just so perfect. Um, I, 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 again, I, my, this is my roommate's favorite album in college, so I've I've heard it. I may have heard Abbey Road more than I've heard any other Uh, Beatles album to this day and I don't know if it's my my favorite it likely is not but there are just portions on this and the care that which care with which Paul McCartney uh was able to sort of regroup everybody and then put forward this this piece these pieces of music is breathtaking
1: on a particular level I can criticize Abbey Road I I can say that I um I think that I Want You, She's So Heavy is overlong and self-indulgent. It's an experiment that, that that reaches for something but doesn't quite work. I think Robbie Robertson famously described it in 1969 in Rolling Stone as being uh, quote, noisy shit, which I think is kind of the way it ends with that white noise Moog synthesizer hiss um, that really kind of only you know Is in any way validated by the fact that you flip it over and then here comes the sun starts. Mm -hmm. I can criticize some aspects of that long medley at the end. You know, okay, well, when you get down to it, is Sun King really much of a song? With polythene Pam or Mean Mr. Mustard, are these really substantive? I, will, I will fight you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, to, listen to where I'm going, Charlie. I can criticize. Actually, I think that really, if I'm going to make a truly substantive criticism, I might say that I, I genuinely hate Maxwell's Silver Hammer. And I know you know Charlie has an affinity because he is essentially an old man in a young man's body for this grandpa music. Um, uh that embodied by Maxwell Silverhammer, but I hate that song with a passion, and I always have and it, and really it 's the only moment on the album that when it comes on i I do just generally want to skip, uh, but all these criticisms are meaningless, you know for the reasons that you guys just also eloquently said that the criticisms fall apart when considered next to the totality of Abbey Road for me, this is in a way for a band that ended in, in actually such recrimination with such hard feelings between, you know, all the members of the band, except Ringo, who, of course, just got along with everyone and just wanted to be friends. But, you know, like, you know, George was bitter, and look at what he would do once he was finally unleashed to release an album on his own. You know, John and Paul were sniping in the press, you know, bad feelings all around. Abbey Road, musically at least, is a happy ending for everyone. You know, John feels psychologically freed he, he's getting these numbers like come together, um, he, where or I want you even where he's expressing his it and he, he's doing the kind of music that he would end up pursuing, you know, in his solo career that, that feel like he is like I'm the man who I want to be. I'm no longer you know bound by this straitjacket jacket of respectability. You know, George came into his own in a way that 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 uh, Charlie has so admirably laid forth already. I just want to point out that on Something, Something isn't just a magnificently well-written song by George, although it is. It's a song that sounds almost as good if you've heard his acoustic guitar demo on the anthologies uh, that it does on, on the final version because just the actual the the, the guts of that song are so beautifully written. But if you listen to that final performance, I want to point out that that's, again, some of the finest and most subtle drumming work that Ringo Starr has ever done Mm -hmm. and I would say one of the finest bass lines that Paul McCartney ever contributed to a Beatles song. I think it's maybe even better than anything he contributed to his own songs, especially on that third verse. He's doing some just, just beautiful work that if you listen to it in the background, emphasizes the, you know, the, the, the pure romantic passion Of that song in a way that the words do not even fully convey. Uh, And then, of course, the final triumph is Paul's. Uh, You ask me, how much do I love? You never give me your money. I love it this much. I wrote my college admissions essay about (laughs) you never give me your money. You know, you know the open prompt where they ask you to write about something, and, and they, you know they expect you to do like, you know, I'm going to write about a summer job that taught me about something important in life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know me, I'm a punk kid, and I, I thought I knew better. I wrote about "You Never Give Me Your Money" by the Flipping Beatles, man. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. I got into college, so I guess I didn't fail. This is a song that has meant so much to me since. That moment on to this day, and again, like Scott said, you hear those first opening piano chords, one of the first songs that I took to from a CD to sit down at a piano and actually just <laughs> teach myself to play. And I, I remember getting the sheet music and saying, well, this sheet music is wrong. That is not what he's <laughs> playing. Because I could tell. I have I have a good ear. So I was like, no, no, that's not what he's playing. So I got it, and I figured it out. And, you know, again, the lyric, again, McCartney gets the rap for being sort of, Lyrically facile, you know, and writing about these these sort of vapid cliches that are that are you know not really you know deep subjects, but when he wants to, he can be more probing and penetrating than Lenin really was ever capable of being precisely because he has a much lighter and I guess maybe even more romanticizing touch where he says, "You never give me your money, you only give me your funny paper and 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 in the middle of you know negotiations, we break down. Uh, that 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 refrain there's three verses of that the final verse only comes in at the end of carry that weight um that's the story of the beatles from beginning to end everything that their problems had been from and then going back to recapitulate the early thrills the early joys to you know again this is i just i can't even talk about it without remembering My childhood, remembering things that my brother and I thrilled to, just that the whole one sweet dream came true today. Yes, it did! Oh, 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 and then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all good children go to heaven. One sweet dream. doesn't necessarily have a rational meaning in terms of the song but it feels like it's sending you back to a place that was purer and more innocent than this sad moment that we find ourselves stuck in which of course all comes to a head in golden slumbers once there was a way to get back homeward once there was a way to get back home sleep pretty darling and do not cry and i will sing this lullaby and then he goes into was it thomas decker who's like an english poet from the uh, 17th century mm-hmm. it goes into an old poem and then again you know how did this man you know at this time in his life with all these you know immature in many ways have the profundity to come up with carry that weight and also basically that song to me is a ringo song like uh, because everyone else is they're all singing it as like a group but ringo's voice is booming out the most with boy you're gonna carry that weight carry that weight a long time I feel like that's like a Ringo lead vocal. He's got that sturdy voice. Like he's going to be the yes. back that carries the rest of them through all of this. Um, I don't know. I, I look at me. I'm just basically providing you a travelogue of the second half of Abbey Road. But I, everyone who's ever listened to this to this album, and everyone who's listened to those songs and understands what they means, understands why I, I, I can be so emotional about this because it is. Uh, the end of what they did, the end of their, you know, end of the road for them, but also the, the most, for the guy who worked the hardest to keep them together and, and ended up getting savaged mercilessly for the next decade or so for it. It's so touching to see McCartney trying so hard to put a, a happy ending on the career of a band that he knows and everyone else knew meant so much to so many millions of people around the world and I, it almost feels like even at the time he knew that that you know it wasn't going to be accepted. That 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 some of them were going to have to carry that weight for a long time. He most of all, but he was he was going to try to find a way to end it on the right note, which is why it it's you know, and in the end you know the love you take is equal to the love you make, and uh, there you are, the end of the Beatles' career. And the most perfect and fitting way, almost pre-planned, although it couldn't have been because they ended up having to release Let It Be After This, the most perfectly pre-planned way that you could have ever imagined for the greatest band to have ever
0: existed. And there we go. That is our Political Beats look at the career of the Beatles. Now we get to the point of the uh, podcast in which we give you, the listener, Two albums from this particular show from the Beatles that you should own and five songs that you need to hear from this particular era from the band. And we start once again with our guest, Charles C.W. Cook. Charlie, the floor is yours.
2: Five songs. Penny Lane. (laughs) Happiness is a Warm Gun. A Day in the Life. With a Little Help from My Friends. And Something. And the two albums are Abbey Road, which is the best Beatles album in my view. And the Best Album Ever Recorded, and also Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.
0: Uh, I'll give you my albums first. Um, I think it's Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper will be my two choices from this particular era. The the songs, I mean, how do you you whittle things down to five? But uh, here's what I will say. Um, From Revolver, I actually take two. I think She Said, She Said, and And Your Bird Can Sing. Um, from Sergeant Pepper, I just I love good morning, good morning, uh, let it be, don't let me down, although it's not on the actual album, uh, B-side from Get Back and Well Worth Finding. And I will, uh, I will, I will pull a Jeff here and cheat a little bit on my fifth choice and say from that medley from Abbey Road, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, the end. Uh, that, that combination is the way I'd end my five songs. Jeff.
1: Uh, for me, it's going to be Revolver, and then it'll be The Beatles or the White Album. Uh, and my five songs are, and I've talked enough about them that I don't really need to explain any of it. Eleanor Rigby from the Revolver, with a little help from my friends from Sergeant Pepper's. Hey Jude, which is from the White Album sessions. I've got a feeling from the Get Back, Let It Be era, and uh, finally, You Never Give Me Your Money from Abbey Road. And you know, if I'm going to cheat, I would. I always, in my mind, in fact often in my playlist sequence it is you never give me your money golden slumbers carry that weight the end because <laughs> i cut out the stuff in between because hey come on i'm here for the meat not the not the gristle you know that, that's what i'm about when it comes to the law man.
0: There we are. Thanks to our guest for giving us loads of time. This will be by far our longest episode of Political Beats in history. Mr. Charles C.W. Cook, you find him on Twitter at Charles C.W. Cook, editor of NationalReview.com and the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. We will see after the show if his promise of firing Jeff and cancelling this uh, podcast is actually true. Charles, thank you so much for joining us.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having
0: me. Jeff... Um, this will be timeless. We can say good luck. Hey, we should split this
1: one into two separate episodes itself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, stretch out the content because I'll be out of commission next week almost for sure.
0: But we look forward to hearing uh, stories and welcoming a brand new Political Beats uh, fan to our great big podcast family.
1: Hey, thank you so much, you guys.
0: Uh, Check out Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. I'm on Twitter at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. And reminding you, subscribe to our feed for new episodes iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, or right at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, suggestions, comments on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.
4: She doesn't have a lot to say My majesty's a pretty nice girl But she changes from day to day I want to tell her that I love her a lot But I gotta get a belly full of wine My majesty's a pretty nice girl Someday I'm gonna make her mine Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make her mine